0: like haunts. Yes. Do you like immersive theater?
1: Yes.
2: Do you like escape rooms? Yes. What's the safe word?
1: My haunt life. Mm. and welcome to the My Haunt Life podcast. I'm Mike and I'm Russell and Russell. We have a special guest and before you say who the guest is because I'm having you do it, I have never seen you so excited and giddy about an interview before. (laughs) Like he he's emailed me about 40 times today saying like, okay, here's the questions. Okay. What about this? Okay. Oh, I added one more. Here's another (laughs) one. Like you're so stoked and it's so exciting to see you so excited. So take it away. Uh, well, there's several reasons. <laughs>
0: uh, we're going to be talking with someone who I originally met in January of 2016. We worked on a movie together. I was brought onto a movie for about three weeks, and uh, we were working on it together. And I went off, and that was the year I went to Sundance and did various other stuff. And uh, this person told me about a project that he was working on. And at that point, it sounded like a small little project that was going to be really cool. And over the process of knowing him and checking in with him and we've had lunches together and this project has grown into something really, really cool. So, uh, we are talking to Vincent DeSanti, who is the writer and director of never hike alone, which is a Friday the 13th fan film. So Vincent, hi. Hey, Russell, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for being here. Nice. (laughs) Nice to have you. Nice to see you in person again. It's been a while. Uh, so Starting off, you are literally just coming back in town from premiering Never Hike Alone Mm -hmm. at the Telluride Film Festival. Yeah. How was the premiere screening?
3: It was amazing. Um, You know, one of the things I wanted to do when I was making the film, I always imagined, like, what's the coolest scenario? Like, Mm -hmm. how to roll it out? We always knew we were going to go online, but... You know, the thinking of, like, watching it with, you know, a bunch of Friday the 13th fans was, like, the thing I was really looking forward to because I wanted to see their reaction to it. I wanted them to be together and celebrating it together, and if it did what it was supposed to do, that that have that type of atmosphere all in one place and see a bunch of people, like, enjoying Friday the 13th and walking out of the theater with smiles on their face and, and having that experience again. So. Um, yeah we were fortunate enough to you know get scouted out by the Telluride Horror Show. I actually met the um, Brad mcargue, who's one of the programmers um, or one of the people who works with the with the festival and uh, we met on Friday the thirteenth the game was talking about the film in the lobby and uh he you know and i mentioned that you know if there was one show that i'd like to get into it'd be telluride because they were premiering on friday the 13th it seemed like the perfect weekend it, it very good crowd up there you know it's the right type of you know it's the type of crowd that's really going to enjoy something like this because they love genre films and you know they embrace films like this and um and brad put me in touch with ted uh ted wilson who is the uh you know the the lead the person who runs the dire- the director of the the festival and. You know, he just gave us an opportunity to submit, and so we worked all summer, um, and when we finished, we submitted and we crossed our fingers and they said, yes, like a thousand times, yes, like please come be a part of this. we you know we really are excited to show this and you know so that to have that all lead up after having the kind of like that hope and that wish. And then see it all play out, it was amazing. I mean, seeing fans show up with masks on and wanting to take pictures. And, oh, that's awesome. And like really looking forward to it, like going in thinking like, okay, we're this small little fan film, we're this little thing. And then, you know, walking out and seeing a line around the block for it and going, whoa, like people want to see this movie. Like this is crazy. Like, you know, you work on something so hard and, you you, you know, sometimes you can get pretty hard on yourself and, you know, think like – you know, is this going to be what I want it to be? Or or are people really going to enjoy this? Like you feel that pressure and to see people anticipating it, it like, it ramps that pressure up. And so, you know, we introduced the film and we played it and and the, the audience was really into it and they were reacting to the things I wanted them to react to and laughing and having a good time. And it was just such a good feeling and to see everyone's faces afterwards and do the Q and A and get the questions and seeing people being intrigued and interested in Friday the 13th. It was like exactly what I wanted. I just wanted the conversation to be up. I wanted people to be talking about it and, you know, walking out of the theater, seeing some of the reviews that we were getting and some of the responses we were getting online. Cause we'd launched at the same time. It was, I don't know. It's like you work so hard on something for so long and to see like such a positive, um, reaction was mm-hmm. it was very rewarding and it, you know i can still kind of feel it there's still kind of a buzz from it like i can't believe it it, it went this well
0: that's great <laughs> so and it was only a few nights ago yeah yeah <laughs> still very fresh mm-hmm. uh so uh you you say online we should mention that the film is available on youtube mm-hmm. um and they search for womp stomp films
3: correct yep. uh, youtube.com slash womp stomp films um or they can just search never hike alone uh, friday the 13th fan film full movie and it comes up immediately and we'll yeah. put a link in the show notes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. You say that you met the programmer of Tell Telluride while playing the Friday the 13th online. Yes. How did that work?
3: Um, I was in a lobby, and I, I, the Friday the 13th game had just come out, and um, I had made a bunch of friends through Friday the 13th mm-hmm. making this film, so I had made a friend, uh, this guy, Nathan Barker, who runs the Camp uh, Return to Camp Blood podcast, and so he's one of the... He's a key central figure in the Friday the 13th fan community because he is one of the, you know, I would say him, another guy, Jason Parker, who runs Friday Fridaythe13thfranchise.com. Right. These are all people that are really tied not only into the films but the community and the alumni and help them, you know, set up times at, uh, at different conventions to make appearances and connect different artists with different people. They just, they're just in the know of all these people. And when I met Nathan through doing his podcast, I was introduced through his all of his friends who were a bunch of fans, and they were all big proponents. Of Never hike alone. They were really looking forward mm-hmm. to it, so that was the group I played with online. Right. And so one day while we were all playing together, uh, another group of Big Friday fans ended up in our lobby, and we were and and the guys in our lobby uh, who were in our group were asking me about the film and how it was going. And we were in the middle of filming at that point, and I was just talking about it. And from Brad's perspective, after hearing you know his story that he told at Telluride, he was just in the lobby and he heard somebody talking about a film, but he was kind of like half paying attention, not half paying attention. And, you know, everybody seemed interested in it and it seemed cool, but like, since he wasn't a part of that group, he wasn't really paying attention. And during that conversation, someone mentioned, um, so Vin, what are you going to do with it when it's done? Or where are you going to release it? And I said, well, we're going to go online because we're a fan film and we can't do anything else but that. But I have been told that we can do some conventions and possibly some, some, uh, some, uh, not conventions, but festivals. Uh, festivals. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks for, <laughs> for jumping in there. <laughs> um, and, um, and the festival that i would really love to do would be the telluride horror show because it's on friday the 13th and that just seems like you know serendipitous and at that moment Brad's ears perked up and he went somebody just say Telluride horror show. And I went, yeah, no, it's, it's this really, and like I'm explaining to him, like, <laughs> it's this really cool festival. It's in Telluride, Colorado, and it's got this really cool buzz about it. And it's got a really good atmosphere about it. And I learned about it through another festival and I've always wanted to check it out. But the last time I was at a festival, I made a promise to myself that the next time I would go to one, I would be bringing a film. And, and in that moment he was like, well, that's funny. He goes, because I work for the Telluride Horror Show. What's your film? And so at that moment, the game started. And, okay. <laughs> and, the, and I happen to, like, spawn, like, near the main house. And, of course, two seconds later, Jason shows up. So while Jason's chasing me around the map, I'm pitching Never Hike Alone to Brad. <laughs> <And> so... <laughs> So I think eventually Jason catches me and kills me and I'm actually able to just to pitch the rest of the film. And then as we got back into the lobby, he goes, well, you know what, man, it sounds like you got a pretty interesting concept there. Why don't you send me the materials that you have? I'll show it to the the festival director and the programmers and we'll see if there's room for you. Um, And so right away, I, you know, I put my put everything together. I put an email together with the two trailers, um, actually three trailers that we had at that point. Um, a synopsis of the film, some photos, and I just basically gave him the the elevator pitch and let him decide from there. Um, He contacted me the next day um, and said, Hey, man, I think you got something here. Um, I want to show this to the guys, I'll let you get back to you. And uh, a couple days later, I got an email from from Ted, uh, who's the, you know, director of the festival. And he was like, Yeah, man, like, we think you got something special here. And you know, we're, you know, we're premiering on Friday the 13th this year and we wanted to do something special. And you know, the idea we were kicking around right now is just, you know, maybe showing one of the old films or or something like that. But he goes, I think you offer up something that might be a little bit different and, you know, give the audience a reason to come to tell you Ride horror show for yeah. something a little bit unexpected. And at that point I didn't have a film to show him. I just had me you know, like, I'd say three quarters of it shot and still a lot of work to do. And so I said, okay, your deadline is October. No, it was September 20th. And I was like, I will submit something before September 20th and we'll make our final decision there. So they left the door open for me. And again, there was another, there was the next level of pressure that got put on to be like, Mm -hmm. okay, now if we do well enough, we're going to get into Telluride and we need to get ready to screen and all this stuff. So from there we worked on the film and eventually we got it to a point where we submitted a rough cut. Um, In the second week of September, it was fully cut, but we didn't have all the music. We only had maybe the first act done with Ryan's score and the rest of it was temp. It was missing a lot of sound effects. I mean, there was an entire fight scene without sound effects and they watched it really rough. But an amazing thing after the festival that I found out was, and they accepted it obviously, and and it went in and I was really proud and I was like, I can't believe they accepted it and it looked that rough. And while we were there for the last night, I talked to one of the programmers, this guy, Eric. He goes you know, he's like, I really want to thank you for submitting the film. It was really great. And it really brought a lot to the festival. And, you know, we think it's, you know, it was a really shiny moment of this year's fest. And I was like, you know, I'm trying to at least be humble and like say, you know, thank you. That means a lot. And he goes, I just want you to like put this in perspective is that we received over 800 submissions this year and we had an 8% acceptance rate and your film made it into this, this festival. He's like, so don't count yourself short. He's like, you did an amazing job. And, you know, I, I don't often give myself enough credit. I am the first one to knock myself down because I want to ground myself and say, you can do better. And, and, you know, you could have done better. And, you know, it was really like, you know, after all that pressure you put on yourself to hear that, it's like, you feel that weight, you know, like lift off you and kind of be like, it was all worth it. And so that was a great achievement for me. And I'll always remember that, you know, That's I awesome. think as, as, a, as a key moment in my career is that, you know, I took this challenge and like we talked about fan films don't usually get this type of treatment. And right. so, you know, it was kind of that moment where I kind of had to step back and give myself a little bit of credit to say that that we did it. And that was the, our story about how we got into Telluride and it was, you know, it's crazy. You know, we laughed about it. Like when we went on stage, we were laughing about it. Like Brad, was like, yeah, I actually, with this game, this, this film is in this, this, this uh this festival because we played the game together and that, it's just I, that's it's, my favorite
0: yeah. I, like when you told me that i remember yeah. just bursting out laughing and because yeah. like, it's it's wonderful that that friday the 13th is the game that connected you to tell, right, mm-hmm. tell you right and the
3: that's amazing, pretty amazing yeah and and j- just one more part on that is the fact that that game was built by fans Right. So, because fans brought together other fans, I w- I had this opportunity. So I lo- I owe a lot to Wes and Ronnie and Randy, you know, the three guys who are the heads of, of that game, you know, for making it because they kind of set the tempo. They went out there and made summer camp and made it good enough where they got the interest from Sean Cunningham. were mm-hmm. allowed to make something for the franchise that they love, and I think that that kind of got the ball rolling. And I kind of came in behind, and I actually became good friends with Ronnie and Randy. Um, I got to meet them both. I got to go to a Friday the 13th mocap session for the game, the second round that they did for all the new Jasons and all the new kills that they're going to be putting in the game and the single player. And I got to sit behind the scenes and watch them. You know, and I, you know, I was sitting there when Larry Zerner shows up on set just to visit Kane because he had actually never physically watched Kane perform on set before. But they had been going conventions together for all these years and they've been in the franchise together for all these years. But he had actually never seen Kane work. Wow. So I got to sit next to Larry while he's watching Kane on the monitors, both live action Kane killing the, the stunt person and then the... Um, the computer version of the characters you know, the Chad and, and the Jason character being killed to see what it would look like in the game. So right. it was cool to sit with here with him and know enough about what was going on to kind of fill him in of like, what is what and how the whole system works. And then being able to just sit there and watch them do their work and, and see Kane in action and coming up with these kills and, you know, having a lot of fun and having that experience. And again, this movie gave me that opportunity. Ronnie saw the, 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 the trailer in in January and and texted me and through Twitter and was like, Man, I really like what you're doing. We'd love to tweet out support for you. And we went through a little bit of a back and forth. We were like, can you legally do it? Will you get yourself in trouble? Will I get in trouble? And eventually we just threw caution to wind and did it and kept in touch. And, you know, I got lucky enough to get an invite to go to go sit there for a day and see some behind the stuff. So yeah. And so as a fan, like both from a creator, it's been awesome, but as a fan, it's given me the opportunity to see the things I've always wanted to see. I've always wanted to peek behind the curtain of Friday the 13th, and I've had more of an open view because I've had a chance to talk to the alumni and talk to the new people who are getting involved through the game and see what this world is like and hear their stories. And, you know, that day when I was out there, I, I heard Kane tell stories I've never heard on a behind-the-scenes uh uh, you know, Vir- or crystal lake memories or anything. These are things that I never even knew happened on set and really funny stories. And he's so, you know, he's just got so many great moments that he, that he could share and from each of the films that he did and, and why he liked certain things or why certain things turn out a certain way. And some things were happy accidents and things that he designed and brought to it and brought to the character. It was, these are the things that you know, horror nerds like us really like salivate on. And so to have like a private sit down with him while we're just sitting in between takes waiting for the setup, the next, you know, setup for the next kill, it's like, Hey, let me tell you about this like awesome Friday, the 13th gem that nobody knows about. And you just walk (laughs) out of there that day, like in awe of being able to see all that stuff, but also walk out with a new piece of information you didn't know and be like, no, that's really cool. Like, I like that. I like that trivia part of it. Or I like that, you know, just knowing that, that, you know, even those films back then were a little bit of like, you know, catch your hair on fire and make the film, um, that they went through their own struggles and things like that too, which was a lot of fun. Um, and you know, it's just, like I said, this, this whole process has just opened up this complete, this reality to me that I only could dream about before this. So I've, I've been extremely grateful and extremely lucky for this entire process. And, you know, I want to, Now share that with the fans as best I can and then turn that in, turn my experiences into experience that I can share with the fans and, and do what they did, you know, through this film. And I I think that that is something that, you know, I think is a great opportunity. And I think it's, it's something that, that really brings a lot of joy in me to make other people happy.
1: Uh, We were just talking about the game. Uh, Who's your favorite counselor and favorite
3: Jason in the game? Um, definitely an AJ fan because she's super quiet and stealthy, and she fixes things really quickly. Um, and she's just cool. She reminds me of Violet from Part Five, who's one of my favorite characters. And then I was a backer in the game, so I get to use Savini. Oh, the Savini skin. yeah, Savini is is awesome. Um, but they just released Ted White, and I played Ted White for the first time the other night, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I'm not a, I I'm okay with Part Three, Richard Brooker and, and Steve Dash, like they're the ones that run and have like lesser like shifting and stuff like that. But there was something about Ted White's character that just had this extra intensity to it. And, like, you know, comes through the doors really fast. He's got, like, really good skills. And I was able to wipe out an entire lobby the first time I used him. And I hadn't played the game in, like, a month and a half. And so I was just really impressed, like, with the way he looked and the music. I mean, that's the other part of the game that's really great is, yeah. like, some of those characters, like, some of those Jasons have really intense music. Like, Savini's music is really mm-hmm. intense. Um, and anytime I play against a Savini Jason, I actually get really scared. And when I played against a Ted white Jason the other night, I got physically scared again. Like I screamed, like <laughs> it's, the game makes me scream and I love it. I, sorry. I, refresh. Ted white is which one? Ted white is part four. four. Part four. Okay. That's the Corey Feldman, uh, the got film. It, so got it. yeah, he was, uh, I haven't John unlocked white. him yet. <laughs> oh, he should, uh, yeah. He's at level 44. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm like, right. Almost there, right there. He, oh, did. he didn't take advantage of the double XP weekend.
0: I was, I was haunting in Vegas. <laughs> I know, and I was tell your riding, so like I didn't get a
3: chance to. I like, actually only one day of the double XP, so I only got one. I only got so, one level up. I, I got like
0: three levels out of it, though. Three oh, or you four go, levels, yeah. So I'm almost there. Yeah, I'm almost
3: there. Yeah, so, I can't wait. And uh, I think and there's I, more stuff coming too. So like any of the fans of the game, like I actually got a good little sneak preview of what they got coming, and I can't say anything, but I'll just say they got a lot of great stuff. Cool. I man. mean, I was really excited walking out of that day. I felt like a kid in a candy store. And it's all fan-built, and, you know, again, that's all built by the community of Friday the 13th. And I, I just think it's, I, it's just great for us as fans.
0: As I mentioned as I was, as I was doing the intro, Like when you first spoke to me about this, Mm. uh, it it is very funny because I, Mike, I I think I told you the story that. Oh yeah, I remember. I got hired on this film and you were in an office, Mm. uh, a floor above me. And uh, at some point I had to get an answer to a question. They said, Mm. oh, we'll go, go talk to him. And it's like, oh wait, you're a horror fan. You should go talk to him anyway, because he's a horror fan and you probably have a lot in common. And it was late in the day and everyone on the second floor had left. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for an answer to a question that nobody could answer. And, and I, and, but I was walking around on the second floor, this empty office space. And I walk all the way down the hallway and there's one desk at the end. And I look on the desk, Mike, and there is the altar from Friday the 13th part two on his desk. Was it the last <laughs> desk on the left? Uh, <laughs> It was actually the last S on the right. It was the last S on the right. So we were, just, we were neighbors. We were neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, very good. <laughs> but, uh, but so I, like, I saw the altar from Friday the 13th, Party. was like, I have to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then we talked about Friday the 13th, and, and you and I had lunch one day, and you were just mm-hmm. describing the idea of having a fan film, and you wanted to do it, and you are passionate. And I will say this. You were the first person who I have ever met that had that passion for the mythology of the Friday the 13th franchise. Mm-hmm. I have met gorehounds. I have met people who just love the, the image of Jason and the idea of the unstoppable killer and all of that. You had this take on the mythology, and you had all of this worked out. And mm-hmm. like what worked and what didn't in the franchise, and you know, how Jason Goes to Hell works in or doesn't work in for some people. Like, and you talked about all of this so passionately, and it really surprised me. Because I'd never heard anyone talk about Friday the 13th that way. And you know I'm more of a Michael Myers guy. Yep. No, that's fine. <laughs> so, um, and I, I, I have my problems with the Halloween franchise. So, it, particularly the whole reality TV. Well, <laughs> that was like, yeah, that, that was bad. Well, they, I mean, they all, I, mean <laughs> I
3: think each franchise or any movie franchise can tend to, you know, try something new and it won't work. And sometimes it does. But, like, yeah. you know, I think... It, you know, ideas get stale and people like, it needs a new generation or it needs something new to kind of make it fresh again. And, um, I mean, I've always just been a big fan of Friday the 13th. I grew up with them when I was a kid. Um, they were, it was my favorite movie. I grew up in the woods. I grew up on a lake. So I was in the perfect setting to always wow. be scared by the thought of Jason Voorhees around me. Like I used to stand out on my dock after I watched Friday the 13th part six And that's the one where they they drown him in the lake. They put the chain around his neck and he's sitting at the bottom of the lake. And I remember I just watched that film and I was standing at the end of the dock, like staring at the water, like he's down there he's going to grab my foot and he's going to pull me under and he's going to kill me. I like, and so I used to swim in the water when I used to like play on the lake and I used to try to stay as so close to the top of the water that I could cause I was so afraid. Or when I was walking home from my friend's house and there used to be this one streetlight on our street and you could see it from a distance, but in between the streetlight near my house and where my friend was, was just this tunnel of darkness with two things of woods on the side. And I was just mm. afraid that he was going to run out of the woods and grab me off my bike and drag me into the woods and no one was ever going to see me from again. So every time I had to do one of these things, i had to face the fear which was jason and so i just i don't know that used to thrill me and and excite me and and i used to love watching these movies and getting scared and and i always loved the iconic imagery of jason and and even his story and and the way that he was he was a victim who became you know the victimizer and, and and the way it turns around and the way the story of revenge and the the mother and the son and the way it all kind of plays together it was always just to me this like kind of story that was never nurtured or really dug into, and, and and though I love all the fans, I mean, all the films in the franchise, um, I always like, you know, there's just something, just a little bit something missing there that if they just touched on this side of it, they might have a really beautiful story in there that can also be terrifying, and the more you can get into the characters a little bit, the more that it might become even scarier, and I think that was something that we wanted to show in Never Hike Alone too that if you take a little time to like, you know, feed into the story and feed into the lore and start to really treat it you know, with a little bit of respect that you can actually mine some really good story gold out of that and make a really touching story about what, what happened there, but also make it terrifying and make you understand why everything is happening. So it was something that, you know, that I wanted, that I've always wanted to take a crack at. Um, And yeah, and and it was funny as you were mentioning that when we sat down, I remembered like, yeah, we, we had that. And that was when, you know, it was just an idea. and. I and what it, and it's interesting because yeah. this is yeah. exactly where I
0: was when I mentioned the Halloween <laughs> thing. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you about because mm-hmm. even back then you were talking about the elements of sadness mm-hmm. that the story has because yeah. it is an extremely tragic story from the very first film. Mm-hmm. And except it, it doesn't quite play out except the horrific tragedy of the mother who gets you know mm-hmm. spoiler alert killed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. well I think every, yeah, been, <laughs> most people would have that yeah, knowledge think, by now. Yeah, yeah. so it's been thirty years. Um. So what was your original concept of the short film? And can you touch on, like, how how did this become what it became? Like, because this has been quite the journey for you.
3: Yeah, so this definitely, the, the final version is definitely not like what I had when we talked to you. When I talked mm-hmm. to you, I was thinking about something very small at the time, you know, Uh, There was a film that was going to be coming out into theaters. They were, they were planning on it. They had been developing it. And my goal was to come up with something that was going to be between 10 and 12 minutes or even less um, that was just going to show a nice stylized Jason that looked pretty good um, in a small little setting, man versus a hiker, kind of introduced the camp right away and they encounter each other right away. He gets chased and he kills the hiker and it was over and it was just never hike alone. Um, and at that time I had a couple of locations that I had scouted out, one, a trail behind my house, um, and then another location in Big Bear where we found these cabins on the side of the road that are uninhabited for most of the year. Um, and just so happened going up on a scout trip, um, we ended up meeting the people who lived in these, uh, cabins and they let us shoot around there, but we were only going to shoot exteriors. So, you know, shortly after we spoke, I started to put together the team and we went out and scouted and shot. Um, and put together our first trailer that got released on May 13th in 2016 as an official announcement that we were going to try and, and achieve this. And at the time, it was, let's make this trailer. Let's see if people want to see it, if it will make the rounds, and if people will be impressed by it, we'll take it to the next step. And it was on that trip, when we went to go shoot that trailer, that we found out that there was an abandoned camp down the street from where we were shooting that we didn't know about. And it was only really like kind of a local like knowledge type thing. They're like, hey, you know, like most people don't know this, but if you go down the street, there's a road and you can follow it and there's a, you know, there's a abandoned camp up there. And so we started to do the research. Um, it took us maybe a couple weeks to find it. Um, and then when we went up and, and found the road, we, you know, we pulled up to a gate that was seemingly locked, but when we went up to it, it was just a nut and a bolt. So we, uh, you know, we <laughs> undid un- the nut and the bolt, <laughs> pushed it open and, and entered into our own horror movie. Um, and we drove down this road that had rocks in it that needed to be moved. There were trees that had fallen on the road that needed to be pulled off, and we just kept following it and following it until we turned around this corner, and there it was, the first building. Um, And, in fact, the first building you see in the film is the first building that we saw when we first pulled in. I always kind of wanted that to be the iconic imagery to kind of balance that as kind of a memory of the way we found it, too, the tree falling on the camp, it was just like... I mean, it's the most perfect image you could ever think of is a tree falling on a cabin, like... What says more abandoned than that? So we kept driving up, and that's when we saw the main cabin. And when I saw the main cabin, I was floored. I was like, I can't believe we have this much space to work with. We got out of the car. We walked up and down this camp, searched it around, found all the kids' cabins and everything that was left. And in that moment, it was like, we can do so much more than what we're doing. We're selling ourselves short by doing what we were going to do. We could tell a pretty comprehensive story. And my plan was always to kind of do Never Hike Alone as its small thing. And then I kind of had this other idea that I was brewing about a single hiker who was on more of a backpacking trip like he was going along the Appalachian Trail. And it was like a pitch that I had written kind of a long time ago just for myself because I had the idea. And originally it was set in the 80s and he would journal and, you know, he would kind of go into town and do some things. And as I was thinking about bringing it back into the fold, I was like, well, I mean... It's cool to do the 80s thing, but I don't think people understand journaling anymore, and that's not what, how people do it. We do vlogs, right. um, and we're always online, and we're on YouTube. And I started to kind of put that concept together, and instead of having them sit down and journal to do these confessionals, and that's the way we could kind of carry this story. Um, and once, we, once I kind of figured that out, It was all about going up to the camp and seeing what we could build, what we could do to recreate the original franchise so we can actually build rooms that will bring you back to Steve Christie's office or some of the sites where the, you know, some familiar places where we saw characters die and things like that, that Mm -hmm. would, you know, for the fan. And when I did that, I was like, it's kind of nice. It's almost like being led back through Camp Crystal Lake after a long time. And I think that with fans that would resonate because it would feel like a trip back home. You haven't been here in a long time. You haven't seen it from this side. We've always seen it from the outside or seen it obscurely like we've never gotten in and really said like yeah, you know, 37 years ago a woman went crazy and murdered eight people in this place. Like what kind of like what kind of haunt lives over that now? Like what kind of like substance is there the way that it it you know, fed out into the community and and the, they were so afraid of this place and like really harp on the fact that, you know, Places where tragedy happens, we can be so afraid of them and to really play on that fear and it's when we think that we can overcome that fear sometimes or we you know we underestimate it that it can come, and that's when it reveals itself and when we when we think that we have it conquered so that was kind of the you know that was kind of the the passion behind this was like I felt like people didn't think they could be afraid by Friday the thirteenth anymore, and I wanted to show them that you very much could, and part of it was telling the story of. This place is very dangerous, and if you don't treat it the right way, it's going to bite you in the ass. So I think that that's really where the inspiration came from. And overall, I just wanted to tell a very compelling story about a guy trying to survive against the the worst odds that you could possibly have.
0: The mythology mm-hmm. that you you touched on with the crime scenes, and uh-huh. you talk about familiar places, and, and uh, mm-hmm. I think I actually texted you, Mike, after I would watched the film. Was uh, I was watching it at someone else's house, and we had the conversation of like, oh, do you, like, do you get what he's referencing? <laughs> because like, this is the scene, and we we remembered the kill, yeah, like from the franchise of like, oh, this is the spot where this kill happened, and you do that several times. Mm-hmm. My favorite being a crane up. Mm-hmm. that that's amazing. And you reveal something in a tree mm-hmm. that, that indicates Yeah, something. It's just like, there's some really nice touches about that. Now you, you just actually described the, the journey that the lead character whom, um, who is portrayed by Andrew Leite. Yep. Is it, that's how you pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. He carries the film. Yeah. There's a lot of weight on his shoulders and I think he does an excellent job. And the mythology of someone discovering this and going on the journey that you just described mm-hmm it it's it touches on a mythology but it's not it feels like you're doing a little bit of a your own reboot mm-hmm. on the mythology and trying to update it while also being true to something mm-hmm. in the past.
3: Yeah, so I wanted it to be very faithful. I didn't want to try and erase everything. I wanted it to be as close to what fans remember as possible. Um and you know, obviously, like it's a different design of the camp. It's not the same type of architecture. it's not the same type of room layout, so I couldn't mm-hmm. do specific things. but there are certain key elements in each of those scenes that should harken back to what you would remember from the set there and and you know, um, so that was a big part of it. And like, you know, just touching on Andrew, it was like we, I, when we started to lengthen the film, it was because we were seeing how charismatic and and how much we could follow him through those confessionals, and so we started giving him more opportunities to talk to the audience, and and really embrace it because we were falling in love with his performance and falling in love with who he was in that character, and yeah, we put a lot of weight on him and we worked really hard together on that where you know he wanted to push himself as an actor, I wanted to push myself as a director, and we had to, you know, in order to do that, you actually have to write scenes where you. You, you know, have some substance. And so we really worked hard to make sure that, you know, the scenes, you know, there were things that like, you know, it's a horror movie. So you, you get a little bit of leeway on certain things, <laughs> but at the same time, like you've you got to kind of like lean into it and you got to accept what you are and, and play into it and, and play all the right notes. And I think if you play the right notes um, for the, for the horror fans, they're going to forgive you if like logic is a little skewy or, or things like that because they believe the performance. Um, and, and that's what we were trying to do—is just sell the performance, and we let that kind of carry and and, and carry the the audience through. Well, it's interesting
0: because Mike and I were talking uh, right before you came over about <clears throat> some of the logic in the film,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and one of the things is, um, first of all, you sort of one of the things that I liked about the film, and Mike, you and I haven't talked about this, is the way you actually introduce Jason. Mm-hmm. You introduce him in a way that uh, is actually also played with in some of the franchise at at certain points of, is Jason real or is Jason part of his mind or is he supernatural? The fact that you like the very first encounter with Jason, mm-hmm. there's there's what I I think I don't know if you've ever heard the term an impossible vanish. Yeah, you know, and it's just like, okay, there's no way anybody could move and not be seen, <laughs> and you do that, and mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's really fun. Yeah. The fact that you were kind of like right from the opening, Mm. you were kind of goosing the audience of like, I'm going to play with your expectations. And I Mm -hmm. think that works really, really well. And Mike and I were talking about later on in the film, like there's the, the unkind term would be plot holes. Okay. (laughs) So, but what you were just talking about, you can, you can play a little bit loose Mm -hmm. with a horror film of like, well, you know, what, what was the one you pointed out? Uh, The lake or the ambulance? uh, Yeah, I was thinking about the ambulance. So it was just like, uh, who? you know, mm-hmm. where do the amulets come yeah, from? Well, and that was, was like, yeah. but it mm-hmm. works in the context mm-hmm. of, and also it harkens back to other franchises, yes. you know, and like I said, you're, you're paying, you're, you're paying a lot of loving tribute to the mythology mm-hmm. and it's still completely fun. And that sequence is a great deal of fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it leads to before I, before you showed up, I was telling Mike, I said, you created an image which is hallucinatory. Mm hmm that I think is one of the most beautiful images in your film. And judging by the way you're smiling, you probably know what I'm referring to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like when it happened, I actually gasped. I was like cool. just like, "Oh my god, that is so beautiful." Because it captures where Jason is and it captured where the the mental state of your lead character yeah. is. And it's completely surreal and it's beautiful. It's beautifully lit, it's beautifully shot, and there's just one moment where you go like Okay, we're going into really mental territory. Yeah. Right? And I thought it was beautiful. It's, and I, I commend you on that. And that's also a tribute to his performance as well. Mm-hmm. As well as, you know, the, the transition that you make as a director in that scene from reality inside an ambulance of someone is being helped when they need help. Mm-hmm. And then it somehow gets twisted. Yeah. It's like that works really, really well.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's an overarching theme in the franchise. I mean, I think every just about every film in the franchise ends with cops and paramedics yep. and things like that. So we wanted to just jump to that. I mean, we mm-hmm. could have... I mean, yeah, what you could, you can show what, like, how interesting would the scene have been if it's like you watch a forest ranger just oh, walking through the all. forest? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, look, let me call it in and stuff no. like that. Because I'm not asking for reality, yeah, believe and so, me. Like, <laughs> and so, like, yeah, if people ask, like, well, what happens? like, yeah, forest ranger found him in the middle of the forest, called it in, and now we're picking up when he wakes back up. That's just, right. that's just how it is. I mean, it's kind of like... You know, and I and definitely, it's like one of those things where fans definitely can't get picky because I would just hearken back to, we'll look at part two. I mean, oh, yeah. the, at the end of part two, you have Jason coming through the window, grabbing Ginny, pulling him out. Paul's missing. Ginny's getting rolled out the thing, getting put right into an ambulance, asking where Paul is. You don't really know what happens. You just know that there was the jump scare at the end and everybody's arrived and everything's fine now, but the terror is still kind of out there type right. of thing. Um, you know, same thing with like Chris Higgins, like she's, you know, at the end of that film, she's like lost her mind and she's being put in the back of an ambulance. Mm -hmm. You look at the, the story arc of Tommy Jarvis, um, which is all about the mental capacity of that character. I mean, after part four, part five and part six follow the fact that he is so mentally broken from his experience of confronting Jason. That is it's impacted his entire life. He can't live life normally like a normal person because it, it broke him. And I always found that intriguing in the way that, like, Jason continues to haunt you. And, I mean, that's on... It's on the poster. If Jason still haunts you, then you're not right. the only yeah. one. It's like, and I like that image. And I remember as a kid, when I watched Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning, the black sheep of, you know, the, the brother black sheep of Jason goes to hell. Um, <laughs> you either like, you either hate I, one or the other. In, or in, both. in my <laughs> head, I was just like, I yeah. thought Jason goes to hell was the black sheep. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but I always love that film because the actual moments when Tommy sees the real Jason in his head, those scenes scared me so much because Jason was all of a sudden there like out of nowhere. And and it was that supernatural presence of, and in my head, and we when we talked about the mythology, the thing that always intrigued me about the mythology that I never thought really got explored was the concept of a curse and what it means to be cursed. So imagine, you know, when you contact with Jason, all of these survivors have this long lasting curse where they're going to have this PTSD like mm-hmm. uh, type experience. And I wanted to show what that would look like in today's type of cinematic world with the types of tricks that we can do now and what that would look like to a character and take it to the next level. There's a lot of things in this film where, I mean, I looked at the old films and I went, I love that about the film. I want to do something like that, but I'm going to do it in my style. I'm going to give it a little bit more of a spin or I'm going to try to give it a little bit more of a slick production value. Um, but it's going to hearken to that, and, and hopefully fans make that connection, and it's going to make them, you know, feel reconnected to the material as if it was inspired by the '80s. And that's one of the best responses I keep getting is that, you know, these are guys who are like, and and you know, guys and girls, you know, writing me messages saying, like, listen, I've, I've grew up with these films, I saw them all in the theater, and I love them. And you know, for a while, I really haven't felt like I haven't felt like this since the '80s. And that's a really cool, cool, you know, compliment to get because that's what I was going for. Mm -hmm. I think a common, you know, a common complaint by the Friday the 13th fan is, yeah, they just really haven't been the same for a long time. Like ever since New Line took over, it's just, you know, they never really found the old spark. They keep trying new things. And in each individual effort, I think it finds its own audience. But I think as a collective unit, the franchise has kind of been fractured for a long time because everybody kind of wants different things because... It almost feels like this story of Friday the 13th is almost unfinished. You know, it feels like, well, where was it going? And 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 it really hasn't ended. And we don't really know, like, what it's going to be. Is like truly the ending of Friday the Thirteenth that you know Jason melted in a in a you know in a sewer in, in, in a sewer in Manhattan, <laughs> or did he really get pulled to hell? Or you know what happened after Freddy versus Jason? Or is it really we're gonna we're gonna say that he went into space and you know two two hundred years from now and all these different things? It's like no, didn't we want like we kind of wanted to see a resolution that felt a little less. I don't know, like sticky. Like we wanted an actual resolution to this story to be like, okay, if you're going to do something with Jason, let's see, like, let's see how this ties back. And they never tie it back to the mom. They never tie it back to the camp and, and the area and the lake and all these different things. And that's where people want to go. You always hear people say, oh, we yeah. want to go back to camp. We want to see counselors. We want to see all these things. And, you know, I can understand why in the 80s, like they had to get away from it because they did it every year. It's like Fast and the Furious. Mm-hmm. I mean, like how many cars can you race on how many different things? <laughs> um, and, but they still seem to be stringing it out and doing their own thing. And I think that now that this much time has passed, I think people are ready to kind of go back to that because it's been long enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was just about that. It was about let's go back to the camp. Let's show where it's been. You know, it's long and forgotten. And I think that that's a good setting. I think that was a good place to pick up and, and, and where it's sitting in the world.
0: Right. And it's wonderful to explore that camp again.
2: With,
3: mm-hmm.
0: for, the location serves you very well in yeah. this. And
1: it is someone exploring a camp. Mm-hmm. And it, it's going exactly what you said. I mean, I haven't felt that way in a, in a long time as well. And the most excited I've gotten as of late is because the Friday the 13th game came out and you get mm-hmm. to be in the woods. And it's like, oh, this is so cool. So it's like from going to that then going to and actually seeing you know, empty cabins in real life. Well, not real, real life, but not, not me being in real life, but, but yeah, it's a game, Mike, but it, (laughs) but it, it it makes such a difference and it, it, there's so much, um, there's so much nostalgia, like watching your film and
3: Mm. it's, it's such a good feeling. Yeah. Nostalgia is kind of like the thing right now. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? We are kind of like, we're like, you know, Star Wars is coming back. We're pulling the Blade Runners back. Like, you know, we're, we're tapping into these films that I think that fans have always fell in love with and want, didn't want the stories to stop. Mm-hmm. And when you fall in love with characters, you want to keep hearing stories about them and you don't want them to go away because you know it's it's we all love the old films we love to watch the old films but you know it's like as long as there's a story there like we'll listen to it and we'll we'll go there and and we'll support these films because we want to see them keep getting made we have this for whatever reason these special connections with characters in any franchise that you follow whether it be sci-fi or whether it's horror or or anything or you know like you know james bond it's like you see these characters that just somehow whatever it is all the perfect formula worked the right way and they resonated with a large audience and that audience will carry them till the end of time and and you know for Friday the 13th fans the only issue is is that we feel like there's plenty of story left there's plenty of things that they can do we've just been it's been kind of a guessing game and it's been a little bit of a well, what's going to be next, and when are we going to get something? And waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and and, and I think
0: and there's been a couple of you know high profile Friday the Thirteenth projects that have been canceled in the yeah. last couple
3: of years. Yeah, and I think that like I, I think the issue is is like people were trying to figure out where it fits, um, and I think that that's a definite conversation that you know, needed to be had, like where mm-hmm. does it fit? I mean, you know, working, you know, looking at it from a business side and, and knowing how these studios work, they do it, it needs to fit into their model. It has to fit into, you know, what they want to do for their films that year. And even though there's a ton of fans about that franchise, it's like, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily owe anything to the fans. They only owe it to their shareholders True. to release the films that they believe are going to make the most profit for them that year and keep them in business. And for whatever reason, they didn't feel confident in Friday the 13th. They didn't feel like you could go out and make the money that that they wanted to make. I mean, that's that's what I'm reading from um, from what I what I read and, and what I, you know, saw the actions of them constantly, like, changing the game and, and trying to keep changing the story and find a yeah. new path and find it and find it. And you just, you know, and you talk to fans and they're like, just make something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, just make something. And then we'll react to it and we'll keep moving on and make another one. Um, and... You know, it's just, it's unfortunate because while they were trying to figure that out, the fans were the ones that suffered and, you know, lo and behold, here we are working on this film, never expecting it to get as big as it did. And when they canceled the film, there was this kind of like, I almost, I describe it as like the eye of Sauron kind of like turned in our direction. (laughs) Like, well, what are these guys up to? And we were like, okay, um people like the short and they're starting to get really good expectations. The, you know, we released our second trailer and people were really digging it and Mm -hmm. we started getting followers and people messaging us and more and more people, the more, you know, so the fun thing was, is that that really started like an incredible journey for me. Um, where not only was I, you know, at that time, I think when I was doing that second trailer and we were doing it, I just left work. This was what I was going to do all this year. I was Mm -hmm. just going to focus on this project. I was going to shepherd it all the way through and make sure everything got done the way it needed to get done so we wouldn't, you know, waste people's money. Um, And I just went all in. And um, I'm trying to remember where I I wanted to go with this, but basically like... You're getting the attention from from the
0: disappointment of not having... Something yeah, yeah, to yeah. look forward to. And mm-hmm. you were definitely something that people were looking forward to. Yeah, and
3: so we started and so as that and, oh yeah, so that's what I want to get into. So it started this kind of journey for me where, um, as we released the trailer, the the Friday the thirteenth community showed up. And that's what I discovered that's what the thing that like that was like the gold mine I discovered because, from a personal standpoint, because I started to make all these different friends. I started to realize that across the world, there are so many Friday the thirteenth fans that have so many different skills and likes about the series. And and I started to learn about like why people like certain films or like, you know, meeting mask makers and podcast, uh, you know, hosts and, and people, it's all dedicated to Friday the 13th, Mm -hmm. you know, websites and horror blogs and listening to people talk about it and then see so much like hope, like we really like your project and we want it to be good. We want to support you. And, you know, making like, I don't know how many people I've met over the year but it, it was just like, I mean, it was like, I, I met like a whole new group of people, people that I like, I feel like I've been friends with my entire life because we all have a similar bond. And it was like, I was coming home and it was like, these are the people I need to be around. And I was so influenced by them and I was influenced by their creativity. And then, you know, next thing I know, you know, I'm going to something like Monster Palooza. And I, you know, this was in, I don't know, I think it was in May, the first Monster Palooza, not sun, but the one that was in the, in, in the spring. And, you know, I was in the, I was in the main lobby and I bump into Derek Mears. Um, and he was out there and he was talking to fans and stuff like that. And I walked up to him and I had a couple flyers. I was doing some, uh, just spreading the word about never hike alone. So I get some eyes on it. Mm-hmm. And when I hand him the, <laughs> when I hand him the postcard, he goes, Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, is this that trailer that's online? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, Dude, I saw that. It, dude, it made the hairs on my hand, like arms stand up. Like you give me goosebumps. Like I can't wait for this film. And I was like, dude, you were just like, you were the, you're the last Jason. Like, and you did an awesome job. And I really like you. And like, you know who I am. Like, this is crazy. And then I started to realize that like. It was getting around. And so then I go and I get to meet Kane Hodder. And, I, you know, I gave him a shirt and talked to him. And, you know, I got to meet C.J. Graham and Tom McLaughlin and all these different alumni. And, and every time I met one of the alumni, they were just completely supportive. And they looked at it and they were like, you got something going here. I mean, like, you know, Ari Lehman, like I talked to him at a convention and he knows a mutual friend of mine. And after he watched the trailer, like my friend called me. who was like, dude, Ari just called me. He loves it. Like, it, it's like, so to hear these people who have been, you know the alumni have been shepherding Friday the Thirteenth. They're really the thing that keep it alive. You know they go to these conventions, they do these signings, and the, and the fans show up, and it's the interaction that like people like Kane Hodder going and sitting there for eight hours signing, like, oh, yeah. and his lines out the door the entire day.
0: Yeah, I, I've seen yeah. it. I'm sure, Mike, you <laughs> have too. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, he shows up at a convention, and 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 it's not, <clears throat> it's not pay your money and get an autograph. It's <clears throat> it's how many people actually argue about you know like his performance compared to everyone Mm -hmm. else's performance and his movements compared to everyone like and the the passion
3: behind what each of these people brought to the franchise it is a community it is and and, and like and so it just it kind of kept growing and growing and you know like through that time and then feeling the pressure of it too like wow like now there's alumni that are supporting us there's a lot of fans that are supporting us we really got to deliver like the pressure was there we didn't want to let them down it was like now that now that we were the only thing coming out, it was like this is our best shot to to see something in a long time because we're probably not going to see something from Warner Brothers or New Line until 2020. They're going to need time to
2: right.
3: reassume the rights, figure out what they want to do, develop, write, shoot, and do it all. Um, so it would have been a while. And if we would have been disappointing, I mean, we would have been letting a lot of people down. Um, but I think the thing that most would have let people down if there was nothing on Friday the 13th this year after we really thought there was going to be something. So for us, it was you know, it just became this thing where like, we just, for me, I I, I know anyway, it was like, I just want to, I want the fans to just like be satisfied. I just want them to be happy this year. I don't want this to be like another Friday the 13th that goes by and we don't have a project. I want them to be like excited and rejuvenated and want more Friday the 13th and, you know, show everybody that, you know, the, you know, that the desire's out there for it and that if, if we, you know, put a little bit of thought to it, like we can come up with some really cool stories and come up with some really cool ideas. It's just, you know, the fans are there and if you come up with something just simple, they're going to show up and, you know, and it worked. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, you can plan and plan and plan and it's like, you never know until the last minute and you never know until it's over that if it worked or not, you know, in in the film business. Cause you know, people can say whatever they want along the way, you know, as as much encouragement as I got and, you know, and people saying like, yeah, yeah, this is really good. Like I really like it still. I was like, it doesn't like, thank you. But until the fans see it, like they're going to be the true, you Mm -hmm. know, they're going to be the true barometer. If they're happy, that's when I'll be happy. And so it, it kind of all led to that. It was like, I saw the joy that, that the fans had when you know they bought the game and they played it or when they right. go and met Kane and it was like man if i could do that like that must feel really good so <laughs> it's like so now i kind of now i'm starting to kind of feel that it's like wow like there are fans that are like i made their day like it feels good to like make someone's day it feels good to to make a bunch of people happy um and and i'm just like that's the thing i'm most proud of is the fact that like there's just a lot of happy friday the 13th fans this week and that's more than I could ever ask for, and that was the that was what we were trying to do—just make people happy, and um, and and it worked. You literally
0: in the last like ten minutes have said a gazillion things that I want to ask follow-up questions <laughs> for. We'll be here all night. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. Like first of all, you you I remember talking to you and you feeling the pressure, mm-hmm. and the and there are certain things in this film that you don't deliver which i want to ask about because mm. i think it's really intelligent first of all there's no final girl
4: mm-hmm.
0: and i think that's so cool <laughs> yeah. because in your in your situation mm-hmm. you don't need the final girl mm-hmm. and uh talk about because uh, what there, there's so much about this that there's such loving moments in the music score
2: mm.
0: that you you it's like you do not it's an original score mm-hmm. you do not Use the cliche that you would expect to use, and yet it's there. You mm-hmm. represent it very, very well. uh, your makeup effects, yeah uh, Mike asked me a question about like the number of kills the I, it, I, this it's is not a body count film it, there's yeah. not a it's not a body count film, and that would have been the easiest thing to mm-hmm. s- to like satiate the appetite, You're mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, put a guy in a mask and have him kill a bunch of people mm-hmm. And it's like and the fact that you do the slow burn. Mm-hmm. And and there's so much about this. Like, you, you know, Mike and I talked briefly. Like, so much of it is in daylight. Yep. Like, there's huge portions of your film in daylight. Mm-hmm. And they are... And you create tension in mm-hmm. broad daylight. And and yes, that does happen in the franchise as well. But, but it concentrates on the night times. Mm-hmm. And... You know, well, obviously, you're getting the, the reaction that you wanted, and congratulations on that. Mm-hmm. And also, we should mention, like, on YouTube, within two days, I think you had, like, 30,000 views in two days. Yeah,
3: I think we're, like, as of this moment, I think we're at around, just around 35. Right, yeah. which is
0: 5,000 in a day, a day yep. and a half.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're averaging between yeah. seven, like 7,500 to 10,000 a day. Yeah. I mean, it was, it. I was, we were sitting there, like, we. I would be at the tell Telluride Horror Show. I'd walk into a movie, turn my phone off, turn it back on, and we'd be up 2,000 views. Yeah. And, like, I was there with my my two producers and my wife, and we'd just look at each other and be like, what's happening right now? Like, we're on fire. Like, this is great. And it was, like, a really great celebratory moment. And to talk about, like, some of the things, like, the daytime stuff, I mean, that's actually the reason why there's so much daylight is because of that. That was the cheapest stuff to shoot in. Of you know, I, that, that's, that's <laughs> one less night shoot of, of renting, you know, 4K lights to kind of light it. And I don't know. I And I also liked the break of you know that transition into nighttime that mm-hmm. he's chased out into the night that it's not night the entire time because then it doesn't feel like true time passage that we're still trying to finish the day and he's chased out into the woods at night which we know now is the dangerous the most dangerous part like there's I tried really hard in this film to use the first 15 to 20 minutes to set a bunch of things up that would make sense in the back half and everything kind of wraps itself up in a bow as you go like you know why do we have a scene with him talking about his shovel and a bunch of coyotes kind of out there well that scene played two great setups which one it sets up the shovel which every time he lifts it up like when he lifted it up to fight jason in the theater like audible laugh like everybody got it like they're like the piece right. of shit yeah. shovel <laughs> like, yeah, they loved absolutely. it and, and they kind of like yeah like go and and so there's that and then the fact that like we wanted to really pursue that if he's out there and he's got a wound and, and he's unprotected that there's wildlife out there mm-hmm. and they'll attack him especially if they smell blood you know the fact that like to, that you really do have to take infection seriously out there and what's he going to do walk 30 miles back the other way with no equipment no map no nothing just like keep running until he what finds what more forest there's no way he's going to make it he's only got one direction to go we had to make we had to put him in a position where he only had one path he had to face his biggest fear and he had to go and do it and he had to you know he had to treat himself right he couldn't just you know we wanted it to have real stakes like i'm a big fan of a filmmaker called jeremy soliner he did uh blue ruin and green room and mm-hmm. both those films Blue yeah. Ruin
0: is one of my all-time favorites. So
3: in both those films, the gore and the way that injuries affect people in those films, especially in Blue Ruin because like he gets shot. And mm-hmm. what I always like it's funny because in movies we're so used to like bang bang and the guy just drops dead. It's like no, like you bleed out <laughs> yeah. and you have to suffer and you and you suffer before you die. And we wanted to we wanted to make Kyle suffer because the more you made him suffer, the more you were going to feel for him. So the whole you know, scene of him sewing up his leg that, I mean, that was our way of being like, yeah, this isn't a body count film, but we're going to find ways to gross you out and make you cringe in your seat and and hold hands over your eyes. Um, we wanted to really push that tension of like, he's going to keep coming after him. He's going to keep coming after him and putting the pressure and, and, you know, backing Kyle into the, into the last corner that we could get him into. There was, you know, that was all there to, to do that purposefully. Um, and you also need like, you know, you need decent setups to give yourself the ability to go and have fight scenes, which might not be really that realistic, but in the terms of, like, the way you want to do a film, you want to stylize it and you want to make it fun. So we wanted to make the fights fun and, and have them be uh, dynamic. So we didn't want to just have, you know, just, like, them hitting each other with, with right. the two things. We wanted to have moves and, and camera moves and, and and really, like, play it like a ballet of, of survival, of, of, you know, one false move and you're dead. So, um, you know, that was kind of there. And obviously, like, we were working with a budget and it was... It was a challenge, but a good one to be like, okay, this is how much time we have. This is how much money we can spend. These are the types of stunts we can do. Let's just put it into, you know, let's put it into a few really good moments and just make sure that we service those moments and lead up to them. Um, You know, like my favorite, my, obviously my favorite stunt is the door to nowhere. Oh um, yeah, which is like you know one of the from not only from a stunt standpoint but from a camera standpoint too of the way we pulled off that shot to really give you that feeling of getting tossed out the door. How did you pull off that
2: shot? Uh, oh, cool.
3: <laughs> no, this is good. I, I like. It's funny. Like I've been doing a lot of interviews and I haven't really been talking about like some of the camera tricks we pulled and, and like I'm really interested in talking about this. Is like and that was there, actually
0: there's several nice ones. It's like uh, and, and I definitely want to hear what you're about to say, but yeah. uh, just really quickly like. The camera move where the camera is racing up a creek as he is running perpendicular to the, mm-hmm. the camera path, and you know, like the the uh, the stunt through the door, and there's a couple of you know, there's a couple of really good moments of him climbing directly into the camera, yep. you know, the point of view, and there's, there's you you do a lot, of, you have a lot of fun with the camera.
3: Yeah, no, I really, so. I I have an affinity. Like I was always been a photographer, but I wouldn't say I'm a professional photographer. Mm-hmm. I just have always had, you know. A keen eye for things that I've always just loved the like just the way it's shot is just the way I like things shot, Mm -hmm. and I just tried to use that. And I worked with my DPs Chris and JD to be like, I'm thinking of a shot like this, and work with them and find that angle. And once I found it, I'd be like, That's it. I was like, Now let's do this, and and let's set up the the pieces that we need to make it technically proficient. So let's Um, talk about a door to nowhere. So let's talk about a door to nowhere. So (laughs) getting tossed out, um, it's. let me see it would have been four shots on the gopro with the one shot of him flying overhead in slow motion so that one You know we wanted to to see it because i definitely wanted the audience to see him wrapped up in that blanket which i thought would be just a beautiful image of him getting tossed out and floating you know flowing in that but the way we did the gopro is you know we had the fight so we grabbed the we had the the stunt actor grab andrew and shake him around and fight with him and really do that so and and they had the camera held and then we did a, a push where he you know looks like he's going out the window we used the cut there to kind of have him fly overhead but we could have done it straight through where he does that. It cuts into uh we had a dummy. Um and <laughs> Really? Uh, yeah, so we wrapped a dummy in the blanket and we taped the 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 camera to his hand and we put it in the case. Um and we threw him out a couple times. And so we just did it enough so like we saw enough of the enough of the sheet in front of it to make it feel like it was in his hand and enough of the ground so you can see it coming into the impact. And then so it hits. And so we know that, like, the way GoPros work is when they hit or when they get put on black, they give you a nice black frame. So when we did that, we had then the actor grab, do another shot. So we cut, and we picked it up, and we cut it. So then what we had was the actor get on his knees, put the put the sheet on, grab it, and reenact the last part of the fall. So fall forward and throw the camera as you go. So you just cut on the black space and right. it picks up. So then you get the roll. And again, you just let it roll out and it does its thing. And then for the last shot, you start it down on black, pull it up and roll it into its position and let it go. And in that thing, JD did a, had a brilliant idea because he does a lot of car commercials and does a lot Ooh. of shooting with GoPros. And about a year and a half ago or two years ago, one of his GoPros fell off and the case got completely smashed. So it had like all this broken glass and stuff like that sticking into where the camera is supposed to go. But he kept this case. He's like, I don't know. I just had a feeling I was going to use it for something. So the broken glass effect is actually practical. It's the actual case that's oh, wow. broken and covers the and covers the lens. And so we wanted to make it feel like the lens was broken and then added a little bit of the VFX to have it kind of glitchy mm-hmm. to give that sense that now that like... You know, Kyle's world is broken. He's been kind of injured big time and and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And to have that feeling of like, yeah, we wanted that dynamic action of of being thrown out and what it's like to be thrown out of a second story like window um, and to have the audience feel it. And then like feel the power of like the next moment when Jason jumps down. Like you just know how far he just fell. And now this guy just like you know superhero landing like right. coming down <laughs> and um and coming in and like really setting up the presence of how powerful Jason is and how scary Jason is and how dangerous he is um and really playing with that and playing with his reveal and you know just the way we shot Jason which was you know I wanted to treat him like he was Godzilla I wanted to make him Mm -hmm. feel like he was 80 stories tall. And every time we shot him, we were always shooting up. You know, he was always, you know, taking over the entire frame or breaking frame or, you know, always moving with weight and always moving with power and, and, you know, and and meaning and force. And so, you know, he wanted this this oncoming storm that wasn't going to stop until, you know, Kyle was dead. Um, And that's like one of my favorite things about the film is like Jason's just pretty much unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of fun to play with that.
0: He's very... Uh, straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and uh, I have to ask about that actor who played Jason. Uh, that would be
3: me. Yeah. (laughs) And, but no, I I have to, I give to give a lot of credit to my stunt double to Brian. Brian did a lot of the fighting, Mm Mm-hmm um, I will say that when we first stepped into it and I, we brought Jessica, um, Bennett on, who was our stunt coordinator, mm-hmm. I you know Andrew and I were both like sitting there like confident, two confident young men. Yeah, we're going to do all our own stunts. And then <laughs> she goes, wait a second. Like you guys have to understand that like, if you do a stunt and you break your foot or if you do a stunt and you get hurt, you can't shoot anymore. That's why the stunt people are here. You need to be protected. We need to protect you. So we need to make sure you're not going to get hurt. We need to make sure that you're going to be able to carry all you know, the narrative scenes and let us take care of the action. So I worked a lot with Brian as far as trading off. So he would do a lot of the things where if they were fighting and it was going to be dangerous, he was in there because we needed to make sure that nobody got hurt. But I did a lot of like the stalking. I did a lot of the stuff that's in the trail scene. Um, I do the lake scene um, and I'm mixed into the fighting. Mm-hmm. And I do the face reveal um, that's all me. Uh, everything was designed for, for the way the costume fit me. Um, and like the stepping and the walking and all the background stuff. Like that's mostly me. It's, mm-hmm. it's mostly when we get into the really high impact, dangerous things that, that Brian takes over. And, and really, he does a great job. We, we really work together to try and mimic each other's movements. And, you know, it was just a lot of fun to like play Jason and also direct Jason at the same time. So right. it gave me a good opportunity to do both.
0: And, and talk about your inspiration of Jason. How did you make that your own?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was inspired by all of them. I mean, they all have specific techniques that they borrowed from each other. Like the head tilt started with Steve dash, Mm -hmm. you know, the first time. and, And, you know, speaking of the altar, um, so, I mean, there's that. So that's always been portrayed in some way, shape or form. Uh, I really was, you know, inspired by Kane and, and some of the things he did with his movement and the way that like sometimes the head turns first before the body. Yes. Um, and the way that, that Jason looks like, I would say like my fa like my most proudest acting moment is the scene like after Kyle gets away the first time. And he sinks down into the camera and looks and it's just a really subtle movement and the way he just kind of, I sweep off screen. It was like that feels like Jason movement to me. There's like, there's a swiftness to it. Um, he's not fast. Like we didn't want to do running Jason. But what I wanted to remind people is that Jason's like, you know, when I'm in that costume with everything on, I'm about six four, six five, And I have a long stride. So when the legs start moving and I might be power walking, I'm moving pretty fast. There's like a certain energy to him. And so I wanted to bring that to it, this thing of like, he may, it might be the tortoise and the hare here, but this tortoise is, is a steam engine and it's just going to keep barreling and it's going to keep coming. And we really played that up in that first scene where we're really getting to the chase. Like we start off slow and it's like one of my favorite moments of like the slow motion and the slow motion steps and just this. Boom, this lumbering thing, and then you pick up the pace again, and then all of a sudden you see how fast Jason really is moving. And I think that that's kind of something that's been lost. I mean, I remember in Freddy versus Jason, um, he was very slow and he's kind of lumbering. And I don't know, I think that takes away from the intensity of the character. You know, I think Kane Hodder, CJ Graham, Ted White, Richard Brooker, you know, all those guys brought an intensity to it. And so did Derek Mears. But the only difference is that Derek Mears played a version of Jason that was supposed to be human. So he was able to run and he had that type of right. energy to it, which was a lot of fun. But I'm more interested in Undead Jason. Undead Jason can do many more cool things like take an axe to the neck or, mm-hmm. you know, get things smashed over him and not and not feel the pain. He's just going to keep going through it. And it's like we have almost, you know, we have a couple moments like in the film where like you can almost like, Hear Jason under his mask go, "What are you stupid?" <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean, like you idiot, and then yeah. and then make Kyle pay for it. And I thought that that was that was fun because it showed, even though Kyle was outmatched, and even though Kyle was definitely you know, fighting it was David versus Goliath that he wasn't giving up and he was doing everything he could to survive. And you wanted to see him keep going and playing, you know, using every trick in the book. It wasn't just about physicality. It was also about, you know, the mental side of it being able to outsmart Jason and mm-hmm. outmaneuver Jason. Um, you know, there's a scene that I hadn't played the game yet, but after we had shot it in May and then eventually the game came out later that summer and, Um, And I was playing it's the scene where he first comes back in and he's about to get his med kit. And then Jason walks by and he's like hiding under the table. Um, I just remember like we watched that scene and I remember I I would get the same feeling from playing the game of like you have to hide from Jason. You have to move around. And if you're like you're the right character in the game, you can stay pretty hidden. But like moments in the game where I'd be hiding behind a wall, watching Jason walk by a window and actually feeling that fear of like, oh, he's right out there. He's going to kill my character. And then you know, cutting that scene, I was like, wow, this really feels like I'm playing the game right now. Like I'm like, (laughs) I'm in a moment where you're trying to like maneuver him and Jason's just outside and he's going to come in the building and feeling that like, you know, the the thing I love about that scene is the fact that the, like the walls keep closing in slowly on, on Drew until he's pushed back into the corner and he has to fight back. You know, I think that it's, you know, it's the logical step for him to take is to try and hide first and not want to enter in any conflict with Jason. And then when he's forced to, he's able to somewhat formidably, you know, get himself out there with wit. Um, and then he gets cut off again, and now he has to fight again. And, you know, it's just this, like, you know, people do amazing things when they're put in a position of survival, and so we wanted to keep doing that to him.
0: And actually that's one of the things that, that appealed to me about the the fight sequences in the film is the fact that it he's proactive. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. fights back, and there's so many times. It, it mm-hmm. Some of the films in the franchise, I think, do become body count pictures mm-hmm. and it's like you run until you die yeah and like that's not that interesting Mm-mm. and and in your film there are there there are so there are a couple of humorous fight scenes <laughs> yeah. definitely so yeah we um, wanted
3: to be t- i mean friday the 13th always had a little bit of black humor oh, in yeah, it and, and stuff like that so we wanted to bring that in we wanted to have fun with it we didn't want to be serious we didn't want to make an avant-garde friday the 13th like film we wanted to rem- like be like no we know who our audience is we know what type of comedy they like they're going to appreciate this and it's for them like and you're building it for the audience and yeah when it comes to you know into the fight scenes we wanted to give him that moment but yeah it, it was um yeah i'm trying to just remember <laughs> kind of like where i wanted to go with that but uh, what was the question again just so I can, no i was just uh, yeah.
0: making the comment that i liked the fact that he was <laughs> oh, proactive yeah. mm-hmm. and that it, it just because i get to i i'm yeah. not a big fan of the slasher movie that is just a slaughter mm-hmm. fest because it's not that interesting and and this is a guy who does have cunning who knows how to handle himself in the woods and he's just fighting Mm -hmm. the the animal that he meets on this particular hike is worse than usual
3: yeah and and like like we took inspiration when i was writing this film from 127 hours uh the martian where it's yeah and there's an actual cinematical there's a cinematic um it's basically cinematically the same film, the way that 127 Hours in the Martian work. There's a guy who's doing confessionals who then goes into a narrative and has obstacles that he has to overcome and a story that you're going to follow him along on. And that's that's the formula. And it was like, wow, imagine that with Friday the 13th plugged in. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. I mean, we know, like, there's only so many formulas for movies. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you can only make... But what you do is you just change the elements around and that's how you make them diverse. And so it was literally... Taking that formula, applying it to Friday the 13th and then applying the mythos. And you reminded me what I wanted to say before was about that survivor aspect and the, the constant proactiveness was there's a backer who we had. His name is Matthew Barrett. He, he was one of our he ended up being one of our executive producers because he went in so deep on the film because he believed in it so much. And so because he was one of the top backers, I, I called him and I, you know, I thanked him in person and I asked him straight up. I was like, what do you want to see in this film? Like, what about Friday the 13th inspires you or what's like the scene in the film that you love? Like, what do you love? And he, and he started talking about how he loves part three. And the reason why he loves part three is because it's an extended chase scene at the end between Chris Higgins and and, and Jason. And she's one of the only... Um, girls, I mean, no, all the girls fight back at the end, but that's what you get. The final girl fights back, right. whether it's, you know, one of my favorites when Ginny in part two kicks Steve dash right in the nuts. And like, it's the only time you ever hear Jason say anything. He's like, oh, and he right. falls over. Um, and, and that, but like, you know, Chris fights him. Like, you know, he comes out of the, comes out of the front door and she hits him with the log and he falls over and he keeps running and, you know, fighting him in the, fighting him in the barn and eventually hitting him in the head with the axe like she fights back and, and we like those moments that like you fight you run you fight you run you fight you run and, and you, no matter where you go you keep getting put into a corner and you have to fight your way out and he liked the fact that part three had such an extended version of that and, it was, and as I'm listening to it I'm laughing in my head being like that's exactly what this movie is this mm-hmm. is exactly what you're going to want and it was very satisfying that I emailed him. I said, Matt, did we give you what you want? And he said, yeah. He's like, this is what I wanted. This is so great. And so, again, that was kind of the, the spirit of it. It was like, here's what the fans want. So let's let's deliver it. And that was the pressure to do that. So, uh, I mean, from his standpoint, it, was, it made me so happy to get that email and see that he was satisfied with it. Awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Earlier we had mentioned, um, yeah. I, I brought up the score and the makeup effects.
3: Uh, who yeah. did your score? So the score was done by a composer whose name is Ryan Perez Dapple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually knew him from the gym. Oh, we, okay. we trained Muay Thai together and uh, we've known each other for like, you know, three years, three, four years. Um, and we had someone else slated to do the score. And it seemed as if, you know, it, it really wasn't going to work out. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that was going to be out of our budget range in the end. We were like, we didn't think that we could meet what he would need to, to kind of work with us because he takes such high profile, um, clients. It was like, you know what? He, he doesn't really have the time to really volunteer. So we're kind of stuck in a position where we either have to go find someone else or we got to figure out how we're going to pay for this. And in the middle of that, I remember, you know, this moment where I'd bumped into Ryan at the, at the gym and he was like, Hey man, like do you have a composer yet? And um, I was like, yeah, we do. And, and, you know, at this time, like we had it all lined up and we we're ready to go. And I, and I remembered that moment and I, I thought about it. I was like, man, he just wanted to do it. Like he right. was just all about the spirit of it. And he wanted to, he wanted something to like show his chops because he wanted to work in something horror themed. And I wanted to give him a shot. And I was like, I ah, had this guy like, you know, this is who the people I want to work with. I want to work with the up-and-comers. Like, it's nice to have people who are established, but at the same time, I was inspired by his fire to, like, do something important. And so right then and there, you know, I, so I called him up, and I said, hey, what do you think about doing it? And he was like, I'm so glad that guy dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, and we jumped in and, and did it together, and, you know, it, we just collaborated, and it all started with... You know, coming up with a theme and what we were going to do for the music and where the music came from is I obviously wanted to pay tribute to Harry Manfrindini, but I didn't want to just lift up the score from Friday the 13th and drop it in. Mm -hmm. And so as a big Friday the 13th fan and studying the music, you know, there's obvious, you know, cues and things that are borrowed from Bernard Herrmann. Yes. Um, so what I did was I went, I was like, okay, I'm going to pretend like I'm Harry Manfredini back in 1980 and I'm influenced by Bernard Herman. I want the sharp strings and I want all these things, but what other style of music is there that that's in his catalog that might be a little bit different, but still fit. So we actually took a step in another direction and went with a more vertigo type score. So the opening is, is directly influenced by Vertigo, the you know, the big moments and then the little little mm-hmm. uh, quiet and, and that, that that ramp up and it actually we wanted that opening scene to create a little bit of tension on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up nicknaming the opening sequence the Death March. Just because <laughs> it has that marching band quality to it where there's like, you know, we want it to have energy and you feel like you're going into something a little bit different and fun. <laughs> And then when we got into Kyle's story, you notice that there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of a digitalness to his, to his score, um, you know, things that aren't like classic um, instruments, they're more digital. And then when you get into Friday the 13th land and you get into Camp Crystal Lake and Jason, that's when the real instruments start to introduce themselves. And it's kind of a flow of the entire film is that it starts off as Kyle's film and it slowly turns into Friday the 13th. It was, that was a, that was a specific choice is that I wanted it to evolve into Friday the 13th and not just feel like we're going through the same staple things. It was, we're rediscovering it. And if we're going to rediscover it, we're going to have it slowly reveal itself just like Jason does. And we think that it kind of blossoms towards the end of the film in such a nice way that all of a sudden, like, yeah, you were like, wait, this doesn't quite feel like Friday the 13th yet. But by the time you get there, that it's been presented to you and you realize it's been there the whole time. It's just been hiding underneath the surface and it was just waiting to reveal itself. Um, and then we just go full boat all the way to the end. And it was nice. I mean, you know, we needed a score that could also bring a little bit of an adventure element to it because there's an adventure element to this film. So that helped open up the scope and things like that.
0: Um, and the, 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 the tone that you were talking about in the opening sequence. Also, I think I really liked the score for when you actually identify, yes, this is Camp Crystal Lake. Mm-hmm. the way that sequence is edited and scored uh, as, as a fan mm-hmm. you know, as a horror fan I was like
3: I'm home yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 no there's like and there's like a yeah there's like a wistfulness and, and like I kept saying I was like you know I want it you know we're going down a trip down memory lane I want it to feel like this longing and this you know this you know this mystery and and really push that aspect of it like with the little piano hits and oh, yeah. slowly moving your way through and playing that theme and you know the theme you know then grows from there and gets mm-hmm. more you know gets a little bit more to it as we go um and then just to, to jump back on topics to talk about vfx right. we'll talk about kelsey burke who is an absolute genius and i love her <laughs> and she is my best friend and i will use her on everything i ever work on because she's amazing
1: i right, talk a little bit about the visual effects i mean they're all practical yeah for the most part right or... yeah
3: everything's practical um we did sneak <laughs> there's one there's one digital blood in there We'll let people try to find it it was just a small thing yeah you wouldn't have noticed it yeah, um, I definitely would uh. <laughs> Yeah, it, if you don't know what you're looking for, then, then you won't notice it. But it was, it was a small thing at the end. Um, but Kelsey, yeah, so, you know, all the wounds, you know, those are all done by her. She had, you know, she had these molds that she could do that she can constantly mm-hmm. apply the wounds and redress them and do that stuff. Because we had to show them in multiple scenes. Right. You know, she was able to take care of that for that stuff. But, yeah, we, once we got funded and we knew that we had some cash, I sat down with her and I was like, these are the things I would love to do in the film how much does it cost to crush someone's head? <laughs> how much right. does it cost to show Jason's face? And what are ways that we can do it that's going to obviously be the cheapest way? And she figured it out. I mean, she figured out to do it on our budget, and she, she put the time and the effort in to just make it look really good.
0: Well, that's... Yeah. Even though you know, we've said several times it's not about account film, but you do have injuries, really painful-looking injuries mm-hmm. in this thing, and they all come off so realistic. Yeah. I mean, it's you really do feel for him when it's like the injury to the leg is like when you finally see it it's horrifying
3: yeah when you see him sewing it up and and thinking about like imagine trying to sew up your own wound and trying to be quiet while there's someone walking around the outside of this building listening for any type of sound so he can lock in on it and kill you so we wanted that to be the tension of the scene and you know when you cut to it and you see the blood coming out and you know I, I took a lot of that scene was actually from real life because I ended up working up there one day and I cut my arm open and I sliced it up pretty hard. I mean, I'll show it to you guys. Obviously, the viewers oh, wow. can't see it. But yeah, I have this scar here. And it's like, oh, wow, it's actually healing up pretty nice. But, you know, that was like nine staples. And it was just a small little wound. But, like, I could see all the way down to my bone Ew. because I got sliced on glass. And when I went to the hospital, I, like, the night I had done it, we were shooting some scenes. And I didn't want to go to the hospital. I was like, I don't want to give up another day to go wasted at the hospital. Like, just wrap my arm up in a towel, let's tape it up. I'll go to the hospital later. So when I got there later, they all looked at me like I was crazy because they were like, do you understand that if this got infected? Do you understand if we didn't clean this now that like you could have gotten real trouble? Like they had to give me tetanus shots and all these different things. So I was, I really learned about what it's like to get, you know, a deep cut like that out in the forest. And so when that cut on his leg, I mean, some people could look at it and go like, whoa, it's just a cut on your leg. It's like, it's a lot more like... It, again the jeremy soller effect it's like it's a real wound this could really affect you like mm-hmm. it you know you can live through it and you can do some stuff and in his situations he's in a he's in a bad place like um and so we wanted it to feel that and and you know when going through that when they were cleaning it up like they had to spray it with saline and really jam it in there and that hurts like a son of a bitch um you know and then they go in and they clean it out with a swab and they pull the stuff out of it and pulling yeah. twigs and And little pieces of, you know, dirt that have fallen in there. So it's not in there when you try to close the wound because then it will get infected. Mm -hmm. So that process of it. And then actually, like, for me, I got stapled up, but he has to sew it up. So you have to sew on yourself. And, like, you know, it always gets me when he, like, he pulls it taut and you see the skin just stretch just enough where you're like, oh, like, you can feel it. And, like, there's actually a set photo from, yeah, we had a great set photo, uh, uh, set unit photography, Ashley Covington. She has a photo of me and one of the, and the other, um, DPJD sitting there, and you see my face just like leaning away from the monitor, like, oh, that looks so gnarly. Like, but also loving it at the same time and hoping that, like, it grosses out the audience in a different way. That, like, yeah, that's one of the things that Friday the 13th does. It, it it comes up with a really cool kill and it looks gruesome and you go, "Ooh." And mm-hmm. and we wanted to do that without having to kill somebody because we knew we had such a low body count in the film that we wanted to entice them in other ways. And so, yeah, we get the head crush scene, which usually in in the dream sequences you don't really see anything. You know, usually it was like somebody getting jumped up and pulled into the water right. or pulled through the window, but you don't see them actually get physically killed. Like, so we thought that that would be a cool twist on it to actually see him get like completely Destroyed and then wake back up and get to reset it because it was like it's like having a death in a film and then getting to kill the character again. Mm -hmm. Which we we do, like two seconds later, we go into that next dream sequence where he starts to go into the PTSD, and like you see that this is just a reoccurring thing that's happened to him. He's so in shock and so scared that. He's just, he's completely lost his mind.
0: Uh, I think that's my favorite sequence in the whole film, actually. Cool. It's also, it's like, because Mike and I do a lot of live haunts and things Mm -hmm. like that. And there's something with, Mike knows, Mike knows my triggers. (laughs) 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 So vulnerability. Vulnerability. Mm-hmm. is key in that scene yeah. he's so vulnerable yeah and that's like it, it just it just filled me with dread watching it and then when you go into what you just referenced as the ptsd sequence yeah it's like that i freaking love the change of the use of color and mm-hmm. the, like all of that just and the way the it, music kicks in it really like, hit it's me.
3: it's and those are like um those are like uh they're they're, they actual screams that have been twisted and oh, turned really? into music. Yeah. Yeah. He took that and like really morphed some like actual physical screams that like screaming inside your head, like hearing the voice in your head, just like screaming of fear and like that real raw fear that you would have, like the one that you try to hide from everybody else. We wanted to hear it and feel it. Um, and I, I love that, you know, you feel it again too. like, in the previous scene too, those, those sharp sounds that mm-hmm. when he jumps out of the lake, that's again, another, another kind of like transformed scream that, oh, wow. that it, it's effective. I mean, everybody in the, in the audience until you, I jumped out of their seat and, you know, we got another, a couple of videos of people of like, they're watching it and you see them like launch themselves into the back <laughs> of their couch because, you know, and it's like, and it's a good feeling because, you know, in 1980 it, peep, that's what they did. When Jason jumps out of the lake and grabs um, and grabs Alice, like that's what made Friday the Thirteenth famous was that moment, mm-hmm. that moment of walking out of the theater and being like, "Oh my god!" Like that scared the crap out of me. I never expected that to happen. So to have that kind of be a, a big part of this film is important to me because it, it's not doing it with like. As new as it is, it's still showing that the elements of Friday the 13th still work. They just need to be presented in a, in a little bit new light, and, and you got to shift the lens a little bit, but you can still pull off the same old tricks with just all the new, the new technology.
0: As a fan of Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. you've done some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. You've unmasked Jason. You designed a new hockey mask. Mm-hmm. Talk about the hockey mask, uh-huh. and you developed a new Jason makeup.
3: Yes. Yeah, so we it started with the mask, obviously, because we, we always knew that was going to be in it. We didn't originally think that we'd have the money or the time to do a Jason face. Um, so when it came time to kind of building the mask, um, you know, I've been kind of like there was a part of me when we were first doing this, I was just going to do a straight cl- cosplay. I was going to pick one of the one of my favorite looks and try to go with that. And I realized that, you know, I kind of wanted to design my own Jason. And, you know, the design of Jason is really important to me and something that, you know, when I would go on, you know, horror blogs and talk to people on, on message boards. Like it's one of the, the favorite things I always wanted to debate about mm-hmm. because I always felt that the look of Jason wasn't, wasn't progressing in a, in a good way. Um, you know, they introduced the jacket, and they and they did some things. And I always felt that, like from a design standpoint, especially after working in animation so long and, and sitting in so many design meetings and learning a lot about production design and costume design and character design, I just started to notice some things that I would hear very brilliant production designers talk about that would be flaws, you know, in some of the designs that that Jason was coming out. So I was like, man, if you just simplified and chipped away some of these things and slimmed it down that you would actually have this really cool, iconic look, and it would be very simple. And for me, the scariest thing about Jason was always the mask. So what I wanted to do was eliminate a lot of the distractions that were going on in the costume. Like, no belts, no utility belts, no big things. Like, you know, no big, giant jackets that are overtaking the body and making it kind of lopsided. Like, I wanted it to look and feel like Jason from the original one but have a new stylized look so give him the jacket but make give it the style of the old dicky's button-up that it used to be just give it a mm-hmm. little and like the the jacket can give him a little bit of size and things like that so that went into the costume and i just wanted to kind of simplify it and make it feel like the old costume was just expanded just a little bit because i did like the element of like in freddie versus jason like jason's wearing the sweater you know, underneath his jacket, which I thought was kind of a nice moment. I think that's actually kind of sweet um, because he's killing for his mother and he has it. And it's like the thing he wears is like his body armor in a way, like I'm kind of in a, and and I think it looks good underneath because the blood Mm -hmm. coming down from the neck and stuff like that. Um, But when it came to the mask, it was like, I wanted to do something different and I wanted to do something that was just scary to look at. Like when you looked into the eyes that there was just blackness and and death, and, and whatever your fear is, it's in between those two black holes in the middle of his face. And as we were designing the mask, I was looking for something that had the look and feel of a mask that was built in the 70s or 60s. And those were kind of like made out of plaster and thick and heavy and yeah. they have weight to them, which a lot of the masks in the series are actually very thin and flimsy. And when I was doing some tests with some repro masks, when I would turn the head side to side on the camera... Um, you could see how thin the mask was. And I thought that that took away from the the power. I thought that that took away from how intimidating he was because his mask was so cheap. So I wanted something that felt like it had some sturdiness to it and that on top of it had been weathered and worn and is really old. So that's why mm-hmm. there's no chevrons on it. They've washed off. Um, you know, and it, that was a decision that I made during the process. So to get the mask made, I... You know, I did my own custom design with Photoshop. I pulled a bunch of masks together and did some, you know, just did some blending and things like that. And I sent it to a company called uh, Composite Effects in Louisiana Um, I ended up getting paired up with an artist by the name of Brett Morris. And Brett and I just went back and forth and he started with, it was literally like a ball of clay. And he laid it out and he put it over the the mold and he would show me um, what it was and, and he would take photos of it and I would take it into Photoshop and I would be like, oh, I'd like the, you know, the layout to be a little bit more like this. We might have a little bit too much forehead. Like, let's let's chop that down, add a little bit more to the chin and kind of balance the mask of how it was going to sit and really form it. And, you know, for me. That process was like a dream come true because, you know, you know how it is. And we've worked together in animation. It's like at that time, I was always on the other end of it. I was the one either taking notes or watching somebody else create something. And so to have kind of my hands in the cookie jar, like kneading the dough and saying, okay, no, it's going to be like this and giving notes. It it like that was the first kind of venture for me feeling like I was becoming a director, like a real Hmm. thing. Like we always say we want to do these things, but you have to go through the tests to actually prove that you can do it. And designing the mask was one of my first tests. Um, and you know, and, and it was such a fun experience and I was so glad to have such a great relationship with Brett and they, they do such a fantastic job. And it was around like, I think it was the first paint coat that they did. They sent it to me and they showed me a picture of it. It was just, it was a little bit more bone white and we kind of aged it up and, and made it a little bit more Brown. Mm-hmm. But I just remember being like immediately intimidated by it. The blankness, like it, I was like, wow, like I was going to put chevrons on this, but this kind of looks good as it is. Like, can we just add a little bit more deterioration and go from there? And as soon as they did that, I was like, this is it. And so we had a couple masks made in that style. So we have them make, I think, two to three masks that we use on screen just because we needed, either I was switching in and out of costumes so we had two sets of stuff going because we had two hoods as well. So I would have one mask on and be able to run in and, and Brian would be able to do another thing. Or there's, you know, if the mask breaks, like we had um like andrew in one take ended up punching actually literally punching brian the oh. stunt guy in the face when he punches him in the mask and he split his knuckle open but he also chipped some of the paint on the nose so we had so good thing we had the other mask we we swapped him right out and we were there and it was just you know it was always like it was a good move on our part to have that <laughs> there there, not just like have one so so that was really cool and then When we realized, you know, when I started talking to Kelsey, I was like, you know, I'm thinking about doing a face reveal. I want to write in this moment where he knocks the mask off. I think it would be a really cool visual sequence because I had the idea even then of like the shovel flying one way and the mask flying the other. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we just need to come up with something cool. And so the way we ended up pulling that off is I had a cowl that I actually purchased from CFX that anyone can purchase. Um, and it has the open face. So you put the mask on and it looks like whatever's underneath is something underneath, but really like from my chin to my forehead, it's just my open face and you just paint the skin underneath black so you can't see through it. And that's how you do it. And that's how they've done it in Friday the 13th forever. And then when they do the full, the full makeup, they pull the hood off and they build it all from the ground up and it takes six hours and Mm -hmm. you know, they're in the makeup chair all day and they do three shots and they're done. Well, we didn't have that luxury to sit and make up for six hours all day and just get two shots. We needed to shoot an entire sequence. So Kelsey brilliantly came up with the idea that she was going to mold my head in the cowl and then design a face that would lay into the cowl and then blend in. So from there, she was able to design it and really focus on, if we do that, it's going to look like it's a part of the face. And then I said, um, because because we were limited in what we could do is like the way we're going to combine it is we're going to do this with, we're going to focus on a certain parts of the face we want to show off. um, And then we're going to light it and we're going to, we're going to obscure some of it because I don't want it to be fully shown, but I want to show enough. That way there's a little bit of imagination left for the audience to kind of fill in some of those dark gaps and let the imagination of the audience really take over in that moment. Um, I was inspired by part six in that regard, because in the beginning of that movie, Jason doesn't have the mask and he climbs out of the, the grave and he punches a hole through the dude's chest and he turns around. But, and even though he's standing there and the camera's right on him, he's just not lit well enough. So you can see every detail, but his face is so dark and you can see just enough to realize that he's this decomposed monster that, your mind does the rest when you're sitting here at night and you're in a dark room, that face starts (laughs) to kind of take shape in in your own different way. So, you know, I was just inspired by, by that. And I was inspired to let Kelsey kind of run with it. We passed a lot of reference back and forth. That was actually very similar. Um, You know, we wanted the rotted mouth look um, to have the teeth showing, which would be nice. Um, You know, we kept, we made sure that we had the jaw injury from part six from when he got hit in the propeller. He had the, the ax injury and the, and the machete injury. Um, And that's all there. And when you look, all all the proper things that make it line up with continuity were Mm -hmm. thought of and put in. But the thing I really wanted to focus on, which I think is is one of the issues that you can go back with some of the Friday the 13th films is that when the mask gets knocked off, Jason's not so scary. Um, He kind of looks goofy you know, like, you know, part eight is a pretty good, pretty example. He kind of looks, you know, they called it pumpkin head type, yeah. <laughs> you know, the jack-o'-lantern. And I think that like,
0: which at times yeah. I think that that's one of those fan conversations that happens about like they were trying to harken back to the fact that he is a child still. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that necessarily works. Yeah. Uh, it It doesn't work for me personally, but you know, it's like I know people who love that look.
3: Oh, yeah. And it was like, well, yeah.
0: not, not for me personally, but I like him scarier. But I mean, I, I
3: think that like, yeah, there's, there's different looks. So what we wanted was that, you know, my mission for Kelsey and I was when the mask gets knocked off, it should be just as scary as with the mask on. So that's why we chose to really darken out the mm-hmm. eyes because we still wanted that dark emptiness for where you think you should be looking at something, but you're really just looking into the, the blackness of what this of what is going on of, of like what makes Jason up. And so, you know, we gave enough gore there, but when we gave enough mystery and we, you know, we wanted to light him like a monster. And so, you know, that we were really, you know, that was one of the uh, really fun moment for us to do that and, and create it and come up with a look that felt like it would fit too, like, it would, yeah. it'd feel like a good evolution of where Jason would be after being 70 years old in an undead killing machine is that, I mean, technically in, in our film, he's, he's about 70 years old. Yeah. Um, and he wears it well. He wears yeah and he, and he moves, he's still agile. He's still, you know, he takes a Zumba class. He's he's really good. Um and uh, Which is
0: the most frightening sequence of your film? Yeah, yeah. Right? We ended
3: up cutting that out just for for continuity and length and purposes, but yeah. uh no, so like we wanted it to we wanted to scare people with it and we wanted it to be shocking and and again it's like going back to the fact that we're a fan film, so you don't expect it. And we didn't promote it, and we didn't say we were going to do it. We wanted it to be a surprise. And, you know, the whole back end of the film is just one surprise after the next to see how far we were really going to take it. Um, And I think that, like, just like we... We introduce slowly the concept of Friday the 13th. We also introduce the concept of production value. Um, <laughs> the film. Because, you know, the, the first part of it, it's like it doesn't take much to do what we shot in the beginning. It's, it's pretty simple. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's fairly laid out. And we save all of our real production value for the end. And we definitely milk the fact that we had an abandoned camp and we were able to shoot there and milk that for production value to carry us through the middle of the film. But, you know, the production value I'm talking about is like, yeah, showing a face, doing wounds, um, doing the head crush, doing them stabbing each other and the ax in the neck and the blood yeah. through the mask. And, um, and Which somebody...
0: is a, i I love the shot of the, the, the bloody
3: mask. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, and slowly, like we wanted, like with each passing kind of milestone that was a, a step up for us, it's for the audience to go like, wow, I can't believe they did this. Wow, I can't believe they did this. Wow, I can't believe they did this. And then get into our final sequence and really just like the dial goes to 11 and beyond. And I think we just break the controls at that point because the level of the expectation is completely exceeded. Um, and we held all of that information back on purpose because we wanted the audience to just be generally surprised. I mean, how many times do we walk into the theater now these days and you know the entire movie because the trailer showed two minutes and 30 minutes of the entire movie and you see the final sequences and you recognize all the shots and you know exactly where you are and people are spoiling it online because they're talking about it and debating it and what's going to happen. And by the time you go in, you've either done one of two things. You've either dug so deep they actually found the script and found the leaks and you know exactly what's going to happen or you've created a completely different film in your head that when it doesn't match what you want you get disappointed so we wanted to just give people the simple idea and let them go in with a certain expectation and then allow ourselves to then exceed it like the old rule goes it's like what is it um under promise over deliver Right. And that's what we, that, that was the strategy we took. We were like, let's show something that we have that's, that's worthy to, you know, invest in and follow, but let's really reward those people when we say that, like, you've trusted us at this time with this much secrecy, and now we're going to show you some stuff and we hope you're surprised. And I I think that that was one of the reasons why we got the reaction we did is because we didn't show all of our cards. We held it back and we let, we let things be a surprise.
0: No. And I, and I think it works very, very effectively. You know, as I've said, I I Mm -hmm. think you know, that, that final sequence is my personal favorite person because of the hallucinatory aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then
1: Be, before we get to, yeah. to that, that part, I <laughs> yeah. just want to say, um, you had mentioned this, uh, about the mask, about how, when you look into his eyes, you just see darkness and mm-hmm. black. That was one of my favorite parts of the film mm-hmm. is because it, it brings you back to what is Jason? Is he a man? Is he like supernatural? Like, what is he? Because I don't see eyes. And when you see eyes, it's like, Oh, it's, it's a, it's a dude, Mm -hmm. you know, and it kind of takes a little bit out of it, but having just pitch black and darkness, Mm -hmm. it adds such another element to it.
3: Yeah. And especially like we didn't, we weren't going to spend the money on putting in some type of special contact to make it feel like a, like a a decomposed eye that was going to, that was going to actually pretty much cause some trouble with one, getting the contacts in and out when I had to switch costume or, you know, Brian having to do stunts or anything like that. Not that we're ever going to see him with that, but I don't know, for me it was, yeah, the, without the eyes. Like in part six, like I love part six. It's one of my favorite things. But it's kind of funny when, you know, after how many years in the grave he opens up his eyes and he's got a beautiful oh, I hate <laughs> he's got that a beautiful shot. cornea yeah. <laughs> and, and pupil. And, you know, it's one of those things that you let go um, because of the, because of that. But, but it's
0: also, I, I remember sitting in the theater and people laughing out loud at that shot. Okay. Yeah, just literally like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like per corny.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in the, the but the cool thing is, is that like... That's because of the limitations of of what they had back Mm -hmm. then and working with it and the types of things that you could have done today with the same shot, with the same elements – that we have a lot of like you could have gone into post on that and easily milked out that eye and and done a couple of things to to make it feel like it was a little bit more deteriorated, but they didn't have it back in the Mm eighties. And I think that's that's one of the things I'm looking forward to in the next couple of years because, you know, I was talking to some people in Telluride this weekend and we were talking about like the ever turning wheel of horror, about how we go from ghost stories to slashers to you know, zombies, and, and the wheel just kind of turns, and we, we get into the next section, we, we milk it till it's dead, and then we move on to the next thing, but they, they constantly repeat themselves, and they usually mm-hmm. come back, and if, you know, you're looking out at the landscape of the films that are being made these days, like I think Leatherface is getting released this week, um, you got Halloween coming next year, people are talking about trying to now fix, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, people are talking about, you know um, you know, Friday the 13th, uh, you have Cult of Chucky that just came out and is doing really well. You have Adam Green coming out with Victor Crowley after 10 years of not having anything in the Hatchet franchise. And you're seeing this resurgence of Slasher. And I think for the fans of Slasher, they have a lot to look forward to because technology has jumped so far. And imaginations have also jumped so far. I mean, we're in the world of GTA and, and all the things that we experience online. So our con, our ability to watch and and, you know, observe violence has greatly increased. So in order to create shock value, you have to take it to that next level. And I think that one version of that was like the torture porn era with, you know, Hostel and, and Saw to a certain degree about that type of stuff with the torture devices and things like that. But to see that type of level of VFX artistry and now a modern age slasher, I think is going to open up to some of the coolest kills we've ever seen in horror. And we're, we're looking at the dawn of a new era where we're going to be able to see filmmakers pull off some really, really cool and unique kills that are going to, you know, that are going to ent- entertain audiences because we love the, the morbidness of it. And that's why we watch <laughs> these films. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who be like these people are crazy watching people die. But like we we get a release from it because we love fear. I mean, that's ultimately mm-hmm. the reason why we watch horror films is because we like being scared. The reason why you guys go to so many haunts and, and do those things is because you like being scared. You like that adrenaline rush. And you like to separate yourself just for a moment from the world and just be in this in this kind of state of emotion and enjoy it and just take a break for a while and just and experience it because those aren't the types of things you can experience on an everyday basis. And if you are experiencing it on an everyday basis, that's true horror because you're in a bad situation. We yeah. want to pretend like it is. And, you know, that's a, that's always a, you know, it's a key element to film and, and to, to any type of art is what type of emotion you want to feel. And when you're an audience member, you go into certain things wanting to feel that emotion. The reason why you go to a, a comedy is because you want to laugh. The reason why you go to a romantic uh, film is because you want to feel love and you want to feel that connection. And for horror, it's horror. You want to feel fear and something about it you know, makes you happy. So that's why, that's why we pursue it. And so, you know, and, and so like, you know, like, you know, when I was a kid and, and, you know, I watched Jason fall on a machete and it slices head in half and, oh, or get yeah. blown up in things, you know, as much as I was a fan of it um, and of the entertainment, I was also driven to think, how did they do that? How did they pull that off? Whoa, that guy's head just got crushed. How, wait, you can do that? Like, how does, how do these things get made? And actually, you know, those were the films that inspired me when I was a kid to get into film because I was so floored by what they were pulling off. Like the scene in zombie two, when, you know, the girl gets pulled into the, into the wood piece and it goes into her eye, the wood splinter and it's, oh, you know, and it makes you like cringe. And it was just like that feeling I wanted to make other people feel. And it's such a good medium to do that because you get such visceral reactions from horror. And, you know, I think that that was one of the, that's one of the things that intrigued me about this. And I think when it comes to slashes, I think that's one of the best things to play with is like, it's about setting up the suspense and the terror. And then the creme de la creme, creme the cream on top is how interesting and brutal can you make someone's death to that? It haunts people when they walk out of the theater and they think about it. Like, I hope people like think about that his head exploding as the blood flies out of the back of it. it's, you know that's like what a great prosthetic and and to do that now was probably way cheaper than it would have been and it looks way better than it would have done in in um you know in the 80s i mean we have a picture of like we're going to release it probably later this week on our instagram of you know kyle sitting side by side with his head oh
0: that's awesome. and how
3: alike they look and it's creepy and like he's actually He's actually sitting in my closet right now, and every time I open it up, there he is, where he's there, and we like we like to slap him in the face because it's like it's like rubber head, and so it's like fun to mess with it. And like you're talking uh, about the fake Kyle, right? The fake Kyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kyle locked up. We might need <laughs> reshoots. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's it, you know, and to create that, and like sitting there with you know our small budget, I think we you know the, the money that we were able to raise was about forty thousand dollars, so it was it all went into the film. Um, if everybody had charged full price and we didn't get any favors, it probably would have been upwards of eighty. Um, so, so we're still in that price range. But to think, like, wow, with a budget, what other cool things could we design? And knowing the skill of Kelsey, I was like, wow, if I ever unleashed you with a with a real budget, we could do some really fun things together. So, you know, I'm hoping as this, you know, as my career progresses and we get the ability to work on some more stuff together, that we're going to be able to come up with some stuff that hopefully our horror audiences are talking for generations. And it becomes like a staple of that time that we think about the, the iconic kills, the kind of what I built the, you know, the crime scenes about, like when you see that bunk bed and you see all the blood on the floor, you know exactly what that's from, you know, in your head, I hope that that audiences thought about that. Like Kevin Bacon's body sat there all night, bleeding onto the floor, bleeding through that hole in his neck with the, with the arrow just sticking out. Mm -hmm. And what that would have looked like the next morning, um, and all that stuff when Annie fell back into the into the yeah. into the um, into the shower, like and thinking about that because you know Pamela had to hide the body, so she probably lifted it up and threw it up against the back wall. It slid down, and all the blood went down with it, and she moved on and left it there. Um, you know that was doing the crime scenes was one of my favorite things because you know it, there's a story there if you think about it mm-hmm. and you really want to analyze it. There's actually this kind of creepy story in itself about imagine being the sheriff's deputy that has to clean up Camp Crystal Lake the next morning and the only thing you've ever done in your life is pulled over a drunk driver or broken up a domestic dispute. You've never dealt with murder. You've never dealt with death. You've never stared it right in the face. And now you're staring at eight cold dead bodies. One of them's beheaded. Another one's stuck up on a door. One guy's hanging from a tree and there's a bloody girl in, in, you know, in the bathroom. And here's these, you know, here's two guys on a bunk bed, one bleeding out from the top, bleeding onto the other one, now bleeding onto the floor. These are these are scenes that would haunt people for forever. And so the reason why Camp Crystal Lake looks the way it does is because these people were so scared when they were pulling those bodies out there that they didn't want to stick around and clean it up. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to stick around and clean up the mess. They left it. They wanted to get out of there as fast as possible, lock the gates, and never go back. And that, I think, adds to how scary Camp Crystal Lake is and should be to the audience and to the people of that world. That when they go in there, they know that this is like you know, walking into Jonestown. This is like dealing with, you know, the Zodiac Killer or Charles Manson. Like these were brutal murders that shocked people and left a lasting impact that that's why people never go back.
4: Camp Crystal Lake. <laughs> Can't believe it. My brother used to tell me stories about this place. Supposedly one summer forever ago. A kid by the name of Jason Voorhees drowned in that lake. The cops searched for days, but his body was never discovered.
3: You know, this mark that it has, this curse, this death curse, and it's the reason why, you know, we get scared of things. And and in order for Friday the 13th to be scary, in order for Camp Crystal Lake to be scary, people have to treat it as if it is scary. And you have to make them connect with that. And that was kind of what I wanted to do with that. Obviously, I wanted to nod back to the original film, but I wanted it to have that feeling of, like, yeah think about it this is the reason why no one's come back here mm-hmm. and people are that scared and this is how scared you should be and we have that you know one of my favorite scenes of of kyle doing his confessional doing our own version of the campfire tale um you know starting to see the beauty that's still there and kind of um you know they they say what do they say like the the you know the road to hell is paved in gold um and kind of being lured into it. You know, my, my wife's favorite shot in the film is when he walks up to the window and looks out. And he sees the trees and how beautiful it is. And my wife always says, I love this shot because I feel like he's looking from inside out from hell. And he doesn't realize where he is.
0: And you're talking about the shot with the broken glass in the with, foreground. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the frame I, of the window, yeah. And you see it's, the trees. Yeah. It's funny, I remember that shot very well because for the same reason of like, it's... it's you know, the cliche is quiet before the storm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it really is like he's he has a peaceful moment, mm-hmm. you know, and he does have a reflective moment there and he has no clue what's coming.
3: Yeah. And I think it's also reflective of Steve Christie's motivation in the first film, um, you know, going into it. Like one of the things that is not really in the film, but is a part of the film is our second trailer where we do the commercial. Right. For uh, Camp Crystal Lake, which, you know, I came up with as a way to to sell the idea of like reminding people of of the way that this impacted society. That's why we had the the um, the newscast kind of break it up and show what kind of happened, that there was this guy who believed in this place, who loved it so much that despite all the warnings, despite all of, you know, all the things that always happened there, that he was so passionate to go back and want to open it back up because there was something that he must have believed about that place that there was good in it, that he couldn't let this tragedy from 20-something years ago where two kids died haunt the place and keep people from enjoying it. So, And I think that that's the lure of Friday the 13th is that you once you think you can go back, you realize you can't go back. Mm. And we wanted our character to experience the same type of of journey that steve christie takes in the first movie which obviously is like it's very simple it's not like you like they were trying to like make cinematic gold with that but when you look into it and you realize the motivation of a character and you shine a light on it you can do that you know you're thinking about it right now i hope a friday the 13th fan who's watched those films a million times listening to this right now actually thinks about that and starts to think about like what it would be like to put yourself in that situation to try and resurrect something and then have it come and kill you Um, you know, the things that we want to do if passionate, if, if our passion is the thing that kills us, like that is like the biggest trap of all, because sometimes we're blind and that's what Steve Christie is, you know, he's blind to the fact of all these warnings and he's shutting his ears out to no matter what he says, and it comes back and it hurts him. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's a key element in horror, um, you know, the ignoring, the ignoring of all the signs Mm -hmm. and it's a key element in, you know, human, um, human behavior that we do that, you know, we kind of put our, put our fingers in our ears and say like, no, 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 I I believe this is going to be good. I don't care what you say. Like, I just believe this. I just believe this. And sometimes it can lead to a really cool fan film and other times it could lead to getting all your friends killed. So, I mean, (laughs) um, you know, so it, it, there's definitely like, there's definitely something to play with there. And that's really what I was trying to say with, with all those scenes was that like this place is beautiful but it's dangerous and you can't let it lure her in. You have to just move on and you can't, you know, you can't try to save it. Um, and this character who thinks that he can take advantage of it and and not be afraid um, realizes that there's much more to be afraid there than, than he realizes. Jumping back in,
1: uh, to the budget and mm-hmm. because this is a fan film, I know you want to put as much as what you would want to see in a film in mm-hmm. it. What are some things that you weren't able to for budget reasons or timing or things like that?
3: Well, I mean, like, one of the things is, you know, that I felt that it was written into the original script. And then when I talked it out with, you know, effects and um, and stunts was I really wanted to use that knife. Like, I wanted Jason to get stabbed, like, a ton of times. And, like, any time that there was a punch, that was actually supposed to be, like, some type of knife stab. Ooh. You know, because, I mean, it would make more sense that he would come after him with the weapon. But... On a budget, it's tough to, you know, have those punctures or, like, design that knife and have one specifically designed where, you know, you could pull that off. Um, and then having to track the wounds and with the continuity of every time we we stabbed him, we would have to add a cut. And because we weren't shooting in order and we didn't really technically have, like, a script supervisor mm-hmm. and multiple costumes that we could do that, it, it created a production challenge. So we had we had to shave back on that. Um I mean, as far as as production and not having the money, I mean, obviously, continuing the story at the end. I would love to tell the rest of that. Um, There's a story there. There's more, there's a lot more there, but obviously, we wouldn't have been able to continue that because, I mean, that was one of our most expensive weekends, obviously, because of the things that we would have had to rent and expand everything. Mm -hmm. Um, There, I mean, yeah, I think we could have, I think all the way around, I could have probably, you know, done some more wider shots and things like that. Like, we could have... You know, played a little bit more with the wire pulls and things things of that nature to really show the distance that he's been tossed. So we, right. but we broke it down and we simplified it and we turned those into simpler shots and we only use, a, you know, a hand pull every now and then to just kind of create some acceleration and add energy to some of the hits mm-hmm. um, and things like that. You know, I think that like there would have been a lot more money into the costume. Um, you know, that's a mass marketed hood. You know, you, anyone can buy that. You know, those are mass marketed gloves. Anyone can buy them from CFX. Um, the mask was the only thing that was original and so where to spend the money you want to spend the money on the mask I mean people I mean only the most diehard hardcore Friday the 13th fans are going to be the ones staring at like every single molecule on his head and hand and things like that Mm -hmm. and the casual horror fan or even the casual Friday the 13th fan is just mostly going to pay attention to the mask and as long as you know, we, we knocked that out of the park. We focused there, but you know, I would have loved to go in a little bit more decomposition on, on the head and maybe see a little bit of the skull, maybe have like a set of gloves that were a little bit more designed for my hand or Brian's hand that, um, that had a little bit more of a specific look and it, it, it would have fit together more in the same world. Um, you know, so I think that that would have been something where I would spend it obviously, like I would have tried to probably add more people in. I probably would have, like, would have been able to grow it into a little bit more of a body count film, even though we did add a couple at the end. I think that we probably could have played with it a little bit more, like, and Mm -hmm. expanded it. Um, You know, and there's some stuff in there, like, uh, yeah, I mean, the money probably would have went into just, like, setups more time. I think that would have been it. I think it just needed more time. Um, We were, our shoots were very aggressive. We had to walk away with a lot of shots every night. Um, and even though we were able to execute it at a pretty high level, um, I think with a little bit more time, we could have made it look even more beautiful. Um, and we could have worked out a little, a couple more things and a couple more ideas and added some stuff in. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, talking to a couple of filmmaker friends of mine, um, when I was nearing the end, I was like, you know, everything that we had, you kind of go like, Oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. But, you know, best word of advice, he's like, Vin, you're at the point, like, it's time to let it go. And, you know, you might think all these things because you had these ideas and these visions and they had to change along the way through compromise and the things that came up that got in the way of doing it a very specific way. So you had to change it. And that confidence that you have sometimes when you have an idea you really believe in, you can't necessarily execute it specifically the way you want, but you use the resources you have to get as close as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that that, you know, like I've, I set a very high standard for myself. I I do it in everything I do. And and sometimes I even create, you know, goals that are pretty much unreachable. And when I don't reach them, I I get pretty upset. Like I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do the best I can in everything that I do. And so when I have a very specific vision, I can get down on myself when I don't think that I've executed it the way that I've done it. So there are things in the film that I think I definitely could have done better. But when you sit back and you watch an audience, not feel that what mm-hmm. they see is actual full effort and they see the passion that went into it and they see it executed well. Um, and you realize that and I start to realize that like, okay, I'm thinking way too hard about this. Like we did do a good job and we, we did answer the call and yeah, with a little bit more money, we would have had like actual cranes that we could have done some of the shot with. We probably could have, you know, shot with, you know, a drone that could fly a red camera instead of using a phantom three, Um, And certain things that would have just increased quality a little bit. But at the end of the day, what 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 audiences really pay attention to is entertainment value. And I think that more than anything, no matter the level of production quality, whether it varies throughout the film is that we constantly bring this this. Steady stream of entertainment value that keeps people interested and keeps people invested all the way through the film. That by the time it's done, you know, another great compliment we get is that, like, it's 54 minutes. It doesn't feel like 54 minutes.
0: No, it doesn't. And,
3: and it moves so fast and the pacing, and, and we really like that. So it was, you know, I think that, like, you know, there are certain areas where you want to do better, but when you start to notice or when you start to get to the point where all the departments are now working together and the, you know, the sandwich is complete, all the layers are there. Um, it each lifts each other up in a certain way. So like the music on its own or just like the visuals on their own or just certain things on their own are each individually cool. And you might not know if they're working yet, but once they all come together, you realize how much they emphasize each other. You know, how much a music hit really like emphasizes like something that happens in the screen or like when the sound effect is finally there for him getting hit. And it's not just an empty swat where he goes flying through the screen that it actually has an impact and you can feel it. You know, we, you know, we, we are getting a little bit of a slack from the, uh, from the the level of, of jason's footsteps like they're pretty loud in some spots <laughs> um and it was something that i wanted to play with i think that that would i thought it was fun to add weight to jason and like one of my favorite things in the theater when you watch it is when we're doing the slow motion walk towards the camera and we do the slow motion step too yeah um you feel it like you're sitting in your seat and your, your seat moves a little bit and it's something that like yeah like That's a cool thing as a filmmaker to be like, not only am I like visually showing this thing, but I'm actually getting into the audience now and I'm, I'm shaking them with these, with these bumps. And, you know, that's an effective way to like affect them and start to change their mood and get them to feel that, like to physically feel something. It's like, you know, like the step in Jurassic Park. It's like when you see the the water cup Mm kind of go and you feel it in your seat, you start to feel that dread. And it was one element I thought that fit with Jason really well because we see him as this giant maniac and this, you know, this, this thing, this oncoming storm that just like nothing can stop him and unstoppable. And I want him to have that force. And so that was something I I played with. And yeah, with a bigger budget and more time in post, I probably could have rounded out those, those hits a little bit more in some places and we could have gone in and mixed it a little bit different. But again, eventually you have to let it go. And I could have either gone in and kept working on it and kept making people change things. And I would have missed the deadline or I could just say it's in a place where enough people are going to like this and I don't want to worry about it anymore. Let's get it out because we, we promised people a movie. Let's get it out there. Um, and yeah, we, I mean, we worked all the way up into the final deadline. I mean, the day before we were going to tell you right. The, the day we were flying out, I was uploading, you know, I was uploading the film cause we made a last minute little, little fix. Um, we were flying out with a hard drive that we needed to test as soon as we got out there because we were screening that night. It was, you know, it was the typical, yeah. I mean, I, I called it out like a month before I was like, I want to be done a week before we go out there and just be like, be able to relax going in. <laughs> and I was like, but I have a feeling like with the way things go and like just the way life is when, when you're on a production that we're literally going to be flying with a drive and uploading it as we go. And we, we got to that point. And I think it's important to talk about that because that was a big fear of mine. I didn't want to go into this week into that weekend feeling vulnerable. And I definitely did. I was in a position where if the upload didn't go up or if the new version of the file didn't work, that we were going to be in trouble and we were going to have to end up, you know, releasing a version of the film that was, you know, broken in in a certain degree, not that anyone maybe would have noticed right away, but something that we thought was important to fix. Um, And, and even though it was my worst fear of the entire thing, it was that, you know, in the final moments, it was that, all right, we know what we can do. We know we can fix it. We know we can get it done. We just have to trust our process and trust our plan of how we're going to pull this off and just, you know, throw caution to the wind and do it. And, you know, luckily by the time we landed in, in, um, in Durango, the file had uploaded. So it was ready to go. And I was able to start building it and getting ready for a release. Um, you know, our file played perfectly on the, on the theater. So we didn't have any trouble and we were able to troubleshoot it before then. And, you know, it was, it's a good test of character because when you put in those situations, it really, you know, it tests who you are. You know, we could have easily, you know, that Wednesday night before we were going to go out, give up and be like, Oh crap. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. And we're just going to have to do this. It was, you know, it was my wife and I, and we wanted to go to bed early and get some rest, but no, we stayed up <laughs> till, you know, four o'clock in the morning, fixing it because we cared that much. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to let it go without, you know, at least giving it, the, you know, giving it a, a shot to, to, to just fix that one last thing. And literally it was like, you know, like just finishing the last thing on your test and handing it in before the deadline. And again, you go through that motion. Like I notice every mistake. I notice every little thing and, and having that way on you after you've watched the film, like, you know, hundreds and thousands of times to just analyze it. And, and you're no longer, no longer has any, like you're, you know, when you're, it's tough to see the mountain when you're standing on top of it. So, um, So it was like really like that letting go and that fear of like, okay, I've done all I can. Is it enough? Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, going into that, it was, it was pretty harrowing. And like even to the moment where they rolled credits and, and we started to go into the film and and they started to watch it and we released it online. It was just like for that hour that it took to get through the screening and tell you, right. It was like, okay, what's the ending to this story? (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? How is this going to be received? And yeah I mean we're just very fortunate that that it was received the way it is um, we're very grateful that 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 fans really clung on to it and that we you know we put in all this effort and we wanted it to do this and to see that it did do that is very you know it's very rewarding and you don't always get that on a film you know I mean we've all worked on films and we've all worked on projects that you'll put tremendous amount of effort and and sacrifice into and Sometimes the project doesn't even come out, right? Sometimes
0: it, it gets go- canceled
3: or it gets canceled or <laughs> it gets released and the, the critics absolutely rip it to shreds and no one goes and watches it and it fades into obscurity and all that work and all that, all those memories and all those late nights, they feel like, well, why did I do all that? you know yeah and
0: it, it just uh somebody um at one point in my in my career i remember someone saying a- after the last project they had done came out and bombed mm-hmm. they're like oh that was just 2 years of my life that, mm-hmm. you know, I open the paper every day and someone is eviscerating two years of my life. Yeah. And it was, like, it was very fresh. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, yeah, said yeah. that. And I was like, well, yes, but you have created something that people will find. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have created something that people will enjoy to some degree. You know, it's just like it, it. It doesn't invalidate your work, and it doesn't mm-hmm. invalidate what you've created. But I mean, obviously, you've gotten great reaction to this, mm-hmm. and I'm so happy to hear that the Telluride screening went the way that it did. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions because um, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. uh, the basics of like your schedule. Mm-hmm. You created a, um, a fundraising campaign.
3: Yes, I believe paid for most of your post production. Correct. Um, yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, I mean, there was, I mean, there was a certain amount of personal money that I was going to put into this just right. because I was going to try and match and cover. Um, there was some private investment that went into it, um, for some people that came out, like Barry, um, Barry J, uh, who was one of our EPs came in, um, during our first Kickstarter campaign. So our first Kickstarter campaign was actually in October and that failed. Mm-hmm. Um, we shot for, you know, I, I, I labeled it all out and I did my first budget and it came out to $40,000. And I said, "Well, that's what we're going to shoot for." And I said that that was going to be the goal, and we're going to raise it. And we got to thirty, which is actually pretty impressive.
1: Yes, absolutely.
3: Um, but we didn't reach our goal, and we were sitting there in the fall with, "Oh my God, we're not going to get the money that we need to shoot this." And Barry is one of our biggest donors at that time, you know, and he lived in LA, so we met up. Um, and I said, "If you believe in this project, would you be willing to back me outside of Kickstarter? Would you trust me with this money?" And he said yes, and I was lucky and fortunate that that he decided to enter into this journey with me and became a really good confidant. And like he's a very big Friday the 13th fan, was very passionate about um, the entire process and being involved and wanted to make sure that we had everything that we needed. Um, and him and I and, and a few other people and some family members, like we pooled a little bit of money together and that became our kind of one cash station for us to kind of draw from and, and do things. And then, from the lessons we learned from the first Kickstarter and some of the things we learned from what we could do the production um, and just slim it down and, and keep costs down through the fall, we were able to run our second campaign and run it much more successfully and run it much more smoothly. And you know, we ended up raising about roughly twenty thousand um, dollars. And then obviously, some of it came out for Kickstarter, some of it came out for the rewards that we needed to buy for fulfillments, um, and left us with about fourteen. Um, and then that ended up being what funded us through the spring. And then we raised a little bit more money in the summer to, um, to do some of the post. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the the way we put it together. And, and it was really just, um, you know, coming up with a strategy that was going to be breaking up the film in certain degrees where we could balance our staff load and our equipment load. Like some of those films we shot with just three people. Other scenes were shot with 25. So, It was about knowing how and when to split up the crew, how to schedule them because I was the only one who was working on it full time. Mm -hmm. I took it on as my full time position because I doubled down on myself and said, I believe in in this path on, I wanna become a director. I wanna wanna shepherd films. I wanna do this for the rest of my life. So this is an investment I should make to show people that I can do it and I should put all my concentration into it. And it was a risk and it was, you know, it's a year without an income. Um, and just living off of what I've earned over the last 10 years. And, you know, luckily my wife is, is, is very skilled at what she does and she gets paid very well and and able to carry us financially. Um, so I can concentrate on what I I wanted to do. And I owe so much to her just because, um, you know, she allowed me to do this. I mean, having a partner who was like, I believe in you and I believe that you can do this. And I believe that like, you're going to execute this and it's going to be great. And I want to give you everything you could. Um, and so I had that opportunity, but everyone else had full time jobs. So mm-hmm. this was, you know, so, you know, scheduling Kelsey in between trips to Fear the Walking Dead. Oh, I'm only going to be home for three days. So within those three days, you and I have to go mold the head and do this. So I spent a lot of time behind the scenes just figuring out everyone's schedule and how everyone's schedules were going to cross and how we were going to pull these weekends off. And you know the the weekends are very demanding, and after you work a full week and then do one of our weekends and never hike alone you 're kind of burnt out the next week, so it wasn 't like I could yeah. go every like every single weekend, so we started doing every other and I would break up the big chutes so they weren 't right on top of each other that we would slim back down and do a little bit more gorilla stuff and kind of handle that stuff and get it out of the way, which is also very inexpensive um, get as much as we could. And then when we needed to apply the money, then go back up with a bigger crew and get the things that we needed for that. So yeah, from a producing standpoint, it was, it was a challenge. It was like, how much of the money do we want to spend this week? And how can we slim this down as much as possible and, and work within our means, um, and not try, you know, and not bankrupt ourselves, right. um, before the movie's even over. So luckily we were able to, you know, ride that needle all the way to the end and get everything that we needed.
0: It sounds like you were grabbing days whenever you could. And mm-hmm. It sounds like you had to approach it very strategically um, because of schedule and budget. Uh, how many weekends overall? Do you, I mean, do you have a figure? I in... want to say
3: that this weekend we shot eight weekends. There was eight weekends up to, like, the longest we would shoot for was for four days. And most of them were for two to three. Okay. So you, you're looking in there. We shot probably five or six weekends in the fall. Um, with some of them not being able to really to get much because of technical problems that would happen. Um, there was one issue where we were driving to do the opening sequences. We were going to spend a whole weekend shooting the Bronco with drones and from the side of the road, and we have all these things that we wanted to do. And then as we were driving up, there was a big, loud pop in the, from under the hood. And next thing I know it, me and Andrew Lady, who were in the car, are heading towards a guardrail about to go flying off a cliff. Um, and all of a sudden a wheel caught, we flip back into the other side and the other lane and go into a ditch and we get out of the car and we realize that the steering rod snapped. And if it wasn't for the steering rod actually digging into the pavement and turning the wheels, which the, the steering wheel wasn't working and the brakes weren't really that great. Um, we would have went off that cliff and probably would have died. Um, because that was an open top, that was an open top car. And, Who knows? And that was a very, you know, and that's, that's the steep drop into the valley. So there's no telling what, what would have happened to to Andrew and I. And not only did we almost just die. Now I'm sitting there realizing that, oh my God, we came up here to shoot all this Bronco stuff. We have all this equipment for it. We just spent a bunch of money on this stuff and now we can't shoot any of it. So what are we going to shoot? And sitting on the side of the road, and again, another moment where you just want to sit there and give up and think that everything's working against you and that it's just not in the cards, kid. You know, get back, go back to work. Go get a job and, and, and you know, do this stuff. And, um, you know, and having to sit there and go like, okay, what's plan B and what's plan C? And so we ended up salvaging that weekend to a certain degree. Um but experiencing that, you know, it was really tough. I mean, the fall was like, there was a lot of failure in the fall. The Kickstarter failed. You know, we had a bunch of technical issues in the fall. We were still trying to figure out our rhythm and our, and our cues. And, you know, we weren't quite on firing on all cylinders and it wasn't until we had that break over the winter and we did the second Kickstarter that we were able to reassess and go back out there with a kind of a new resolve and a new game plan on how we were going to execute and ended up working. Um, and you know, You know, like I said, it it could have been really easy for us to give up halfway point and say, this is going to be too hard. This is going to be too challenging. And, you know, we don't have the means to pull it off the way that we think that we want to. And instead, we just broke it down and did it week by week. We did those eight weeks, um, and each one presented some type of production challenge, some type of physical challenge, or camera challenge, or makeup challenge, or timing challenge. And, um, you know, the first weekend we shot in May, after waiting for the snow to melt, we got a snowstorm. (laughs) It was 27 in the, in the, in the finale scene, you'll actually see snow falling in the background. It might even seem like rain, but if you look really closely, you'll see a little bit of snow on the ground. You'll see snow on his backpack. Something I was really worried about because that night I'm like, Oh my God, like we have a little bit of snow in the beginning. And like, we want it to feel like there's a spring thaw thing going on, or maybe it's just like the first break of fall. You know, it's somewhere in one of those two seasons. It has kind of a little bit of a fall feel to it. Um, you know, and that's why there's snow in the beginning opening sequences, because we had to wait so long to shoot the Bronco. I had to bring it in, get that tire rod fixed, and then go out. And the weekend we went out and shot out the second round of Bronco stuff, it, was, it had snowed. So there's a little bit of snow mixed in there. And instead of being particular about it and really worrying about it, we just left it. And we said, you know what? I think that... Even though it's there, I think that we're saying something about the setting. I think it gives it a little bit of a, a tease um, of you know, Friday the Thirteenth fans have always wanted to see snow in a film, so it was oh, kind cool. of like we'll just have it make a a guest appearance, and maybe in the next one we'll be able to to really show it off. But um, but yeah, so it, it was a, you know it was kind of working with that, and like basically you didn't have a choice. This is what we had to shoot with. Um, And I remember being out there that first weekend in May when it snowed and just feeling like, again, like, here it is. The gods are coming after us. Like, (laughs) there's there's some telltale sign that they want us to stop, but we kept going through. And, you know, we were out there. It's 27 degrees. We're all freezing cold. There's no power at the camp. Um, and we only had one generator and I had to run the lights. So we didn't have a heater that was running. So we had all the cars lined up behind the back of the camp and we would run into them and and warm up for five minutes and run back out and do the next setup and shoot that and constantly cycling people in and out, throwing blankets on people and just, you know, working together as a team to keep each other comfortable. Um, you know, and then it was, you know, we, when we shot the head crush scene, we ended up logistically figuring out a way to make it much cheaper than shooting it in LA, because if I had shot it in LA, if I would have shot that scene in LA, I would have needed a scuba diver. I would have needed an on-site medic. I would have needed all these different things just to, just for me to step out of the water and crush his head. And we would have needed permits and all these different things. And I happen to have a friend and my brother lives in Flagstaff, Arizona, and there's a beautiful lake out there. Mm. And when I went out there and I talked to them about filming, they were like, yeah, you can basically film out here and not have any trouble. And we were like, it will actually be cheaper to put our team of eight in a passenger van, drive out to Flagstaff, rent an Airbnb, shoot on this lake one morning, and then drive home. It costs just as much as shooting in Big Bear for the weekend. It's just a little bit longer of a drive. Wow! And so we ended up skirting around having to do all of the things that probably stop a lot of independent (laughs) films from being made in 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 Los Angeles. Um, We were able to go out and capture the scene without anybody, without ever overarching like you know big brother like saying well you need to follow all these rules it was like no we just we just want to go out and have fun and we have an idea like we're just going to go do this clean up and take care of it and go and no one interfered with us in fact when we shot that scene one of my favorite memories is the fact that maybe 30 yards down the shoreline like uh it was kind of the morning break but the fishermen started to show up. Right. <laughs> and so there's like this family down the way with like the kids kind of running around and the dad's fishing and the mom's there too. And there's a couple other groups of people fishing. And there we are smashing a head on the side of the, <laughs> the lake with blood flying everywhere. And like, you know, we had like the whole thing where the head exploded with the blood. So blood would spray out and all this stuff. And and we were just kind of laughing and like when we first got there like it was like they're out of the shot right and they're like yeah and it was like all right let's shoot it and it's like i think that's one of the most fun things about looking back on the film it's like when you make a film you can't watch it for what's on screen. You almost see what's in the periphery. Like you can, you know that like your gaffer was standing right there with the bounce or like, you know that this person was standing right there or like what was really went into the shot and about like the tricks that we play. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of the things I like going back. And when I watch the film is I think about us on set and what we went through to get those shots. Um, and the technical challenges of like, yeah, if you've never made a movie like this before and like I said, Hey, okay. In this scene, you need to go build ahead, You need to crush it. You need to do all these logistical things. It seems like when you kind of put that all in perspective about how much work that is and you know how daunting that can see when you're looking up and then you climb that mountain and you take it one step at a time. And the next thing you know, you're standing on the summit and you're like, we did it. And each of those weekends was like its own like climbing the mountain and getting to the next crest and getting to the, to the next checkpoint and as long as we could just get to next week and we could get through it then we could focus on the next week and we just took that until we were done and then it it was the same thing in post it was like okay this week we're going to focus on cuts and this week we're going to focus on music and going into the last week it was about focusing on um you know locking each down like each department needed to be locked and yeah. so it was like I wanted to lock them all at once. You know, you wanted to just be like, I just want to be done and, and do it. But you have to go and, and and spend the time. And, you know, taking a trip, we had, a, you know, I, I got to give a shout out to Josh Grow, who was our VFX artist, who just went in and cleaned up a couple small things for us. You know, we didn't do intense VFX. We just did things that would, like, you know, like the ghosting effect when he falls over, um, the mm-hmm. digital effects. And there's a couple paint outs that we did just because we would notice something in the frame um and he went and he did it all for free just because he's a friday the 13th fan and i met him at a wedding of a friend of a coworker that i used to that i used to work with and a good friend of mine and she sat us next to each other because she knew how much of a big friday the 13th fan he was oh, that's and crazy. so as soon as we like started talking we just started nerding out and when he found out about never hike alone he's like dude i'm a vfx artist anything you need Do it, And at the time I was like, I don't know what VFX I need, but we'll figure something out. And after watching the first cut, I was like, I have some ideas Mm -hmm. and I presented them to him. I said, Hey, I I have maybe, you know, I think all in all, there are maybe 20 VFX shots that we tried. And I would say about 14 of them made it into the film. Um, And we basically weighed them out to be like, what was the complexity and what was, uh, and how much time would it take? And we focused on the things that we knew we could execute and the bigger budget items we we tried a couple of things. We tried to extend the lake a little bit and make it look even bigger. Um, oh, we tried okay. to. Um,
0: it, did that make it into the film?
3: No. No, 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 we ended up just leaving the lake as it was. The
0: lake looks pretty damn big.
3: Yeah, no, the way we shot it, like, that's what I realized. It was, like, that was one of the reasons why I pulled it off off the shot list was I said, you know what? The way we shot it and it obscured the lake, it looks much bigger than it really is. So we'll just leave it as it stands, and we'll let that that thing. And plus, we've seen the lake in the beginning. Like, we there's actually three lakes in this film, <laughs> which is the fun part. The first lake is Lake Tahoe, and that's in the opening uh, scene. That's the big sweeping shot. It's actually one of my favorite shots in the film because of the way the music's paired with it. It's that big, it's the first time the music gets really grand and big Mm -hmm. and it does the big reveal of the lake and then it cuts out just before you get like a really good look at it. But it feels like a really big lake. So when we go and we see it later in the film and that's Bluff Lake in in California in Big Bear,
2: Mm.
3: that's a much smaller lake. But because we've established the big lake, we were able to show that one is, this is just a piece of it. And that was one thing about Camp Crystal or Crystal Lake that I always wanted to bring into the lore to make it feel like, I mean, I'm from New England and like, you know, one of the most famous lakes up there is a New Hampshire Lake Winnipesaukee. It's a giant lake with all these alcoves and different places you can go. It's like, There's all the, you know, you can get lost on this lake. And I wanted Crystal Lake to kind of feel like that, that there were coves and places were hidden and that you can't really get to it. And like I grew up on a lake and it had a cove that used to creep me out. Mm. And in my head, I always imagined that if Camp Crystal Lake was anywhere, it was in the cove where people didn't go. And it was dangerous because that's where the rocks were and you could sink your boat. And it already had this kind of lore and thing to it. So that separation, I always imagined that Camp Crystal Lake, that's where it always existed, was in some cove of some giant lake that, you know, if you ended up in the wrong one, you would end up in the wrong place and and, and encounter Jason. So um, that was something I wanted to weave into this story. And again, it's like, it's a small part and you'd have to really kind of think about it to do that. But that type of thinking was there and my choice of of there. And then obviously um, for the final scene, we use Lake Mary in Arizona, which again, like we shoot the lake to feel like you're in another part of it. Um, is also a dream sequence so the topography changes a little bit but I think that that kind of i think it you wouldn't notice yeah I, I, yeah I you wouldn't notice no- yeah. it's fu- it's funny like like you know it's if you go back and you watch the film you'll see kind of the topography change and actually that's one of the reasons why he says um in the opening scene like camp crystal lake has one of the most or like the wessex county national forest has one of the most diverse ecosystems and that was actually me joking around about friday the 13th because it takes place in new england and california and right. georgia and alabama and vancouver and like it's been all over the place they and shot it everywhere. yeah <laughs> they've shot it everywhere uh-huh. so that was me kind of like you know throwing in like a joke for the fans to be like it's never the same and it's always going to keep changing and right. we shot it all over the place and and big bear we shot some of it in malibu we shot in arizona and i shot you know i shot up in lake tahoe and and different kind of vistas and we we put all that world together and and you know visually had to figure out a way that it would feel seamless and you didn't feel like you all of a sudden jumped out of one area and into the next even though the the trees kind of changed but I think anyone who's gone on a hike in California has experienced that, has gone on a trail and been like, you walk through one area and it's completely different from the next. Mm-hmm. And so we took advantage of that and used that to, to connect all of these worlds to make it feel like it was all in the same place. Obviously, the trick that we can play as, as movie makers and being able to, to trick the audience in there and not make it feel as jarring as it feels when you're actually physically out there and knowing that you're 50 miles away from where you just were or, you know, what is it? Um... How is it far to Flagstaff? I think it's like three, three, four hundred miles. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you wouldn't know. It's just because you're so caught up, again, you're caught up in the story. And if you're caught up in the story, you won't notice those things. And it isn't until you go back and watch repeat viewings that you can start to, and I hope people start to do this, that filmmakers start to figure out that, like, you know we put this together in in kind of a clever way that i hope other you know independent filmmakers start to pick up on that and use that to elevate their game too and and say so like oh wow like the way they did this i wouldn't think that you could do that you know figuring out simple ways to pull off complicated moves and things like that mm-hmm. or to sell things without a budget the way that you can use different elements of film just not visuals but sounds it's one of the things i like to play with in this film like the coyotes in the beginning or what mm-hmm. happens to the emt is outside because we obviously didn't have the budget to go and show each of the kills and do that it was like i wanted to do something that that built suspense and terror oh in yeah the, but
0: it builds the tension with uh, the f- yeah. uh, i'm sorry the female character who's inside yeah and you know, the character that you've been following for the entire hour because mm-hmm. he's extremely vulnerable.
3: Yeah. And you're staying with him. It also, and it, and it turns into a pretty cool camera move too. And yeah. you know, you play with those motions and it, it leaves a little bit of a suspension of disbelief and your mind again mm-hmm. starts to play with you. And we start to use the audience's mind for them to let them start to imagine what's going on outside. And, and, and you can hear it in the voice of the character as he's trying to help Tommy and, and all these different things. So, you know, it, that was like one of the things I like to play with. And because we didn't have a budget, that's why we chose to do that. You know, we got, we chose to do that because that was an effective way to pull it off. That wouldn't cost us very much money. What cost us time and money was the move. Instead, we put the time and the money into something that we could afford, which was creating a really cool one or camera move that would tell this whole moment and really play it out and let the suspense build up. So that was a choice that, that we made instead of saying that like, Oh, we don't have this. We can't do it. It's not going to be good. Wait,
0: are you referring to the move out of the, out of the back of the ambulance? What, which, what camera? The
3: one for? where um, when it pans back to Morgan, the, um, the, the EMT, and it keeps panning back and forth.
2: Right. Um, so okay. it pans
3: from Tommy to, to him, to back to her, back to the door, back to her, follows her out the door, and then goes into the hand slap.
2: Right.
3: Um, it's all just one moment, and you're just sticking with her the entire time. And, you know, we shot with a really cool camera, um, a Red Epic. Um, so mm-hmm. when we shot with that, um, our cameraman can turn that one all the way up to 8K. So we're able to get this super wide image that we can then, in post, digitally do our uh, moves right. to create that. And again, this is something that wasn't available in the 80s or the 90s, um, especially to independent filmmakers, where you can go in and actually take more control of your frame and be able to capture this 8K image and then punch in and still get a 4K image. Right? You know, It's insane that you can start wide and see all these different things and then do everything in, in post and frame it in a way that that gets you what you want Without having to technically try and pull it off with inferior technology, like if we shot this, you know, even five years ago, we would have shot it probably on a 1080 camera, and you can't punch in on that. When you try to blow that up on a big screen, or you try to blow that up to 1080, you see the pixels and you see the the, the image deteriorate. So you're stuck with what you have. So we we got a big advantage in in having Evan Buck on board as a cameraman and bringing on his camera because he gave us, you know, he opened up an entire different world of what we could do with the camera. Um, and the way that we could shoot things to make it easier in post to pull off some of the moves that I wanted to do because I wanted to push the cinematography. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we were just, you know, it was really fun to play with that and take advantage of the technology to create shots like that. And yeah, it's not a very expensive shot. Um, but what's cool about it is it took a lot of time to plan it out in rehearsal and, and, um, you know, he's gonna run out and come back with an axe in his chest and all these different things and all these games you gotta play with. You know, I think the other the shot that I'd like to talk about is the shot where um Jason's coming in through the door and Kyle has to figure out where to hide and we do the three sixty and come back right. around and then go back one eighty. Like that's one of my favorite shots just because it, it's a it's like you never cut away, so you know in the moment that that Kyle has to hide by the time that the camera turns back around and in a theater because we have a 5.1 mix of this film you actually hear him coming through the hallway pulling down all those beds trying to get through and it passes behind the audience and behind the camera and comes back around to know that this sound is coming closer and closer and getting and here's the countdown jason's coming jason's coming and boom then he's through the door and you pan back out and you look at the at the um you see what Jason sees and you realize that Jason that Kyle's gone and where is he? And it's like, it's a fun move for the audience because they wonder what Kyle's going to do. And then they realize that he's done it. And it's like, I don't know. It was fun to create a slick move like that. Mm. And it wasn't anything crazy or super expensive. It was just interesting to do and having to pull off. And we were lucky enough to have a good mixed team that was able to design that, that uh, sound move for us. And again, using the elements other than just camera to create the mood and the tension of the audience, which I think is like an important thing for when you're a filmmaker is to take advantage of all your departments and all of your your techniques and not just focusing on one element, but focusing on all the elements that combine into the final image. And, you know, that shot was cool when I watched it with no sound, you know, yeah. you know, however many months ago. But once all the sound was there and the score was building and and it was tied into the, ex- the, the rest of the film, you know, it really for me it becomes a proud moment because this was a shot that I believed in. And I thought that would raise the production value. And when it's, when it's executed, it's like, wow, this feels like a big moment. It feels like, even though we're, we're dealing with a small budget and we're doing that, there we're, this is one of the moments where we feel like we're elevating the production value and pulling off something that you wouldn't normally think of. And I remember when I was pitching this to the, to the cameraman who ran that shot and he was so confused that he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, mm-hmm. trust me. I was like, just trust me. If it plays out like it does in my head, this is going to be really cool. And we were able And once he, once he understood what I was trying to pull off, we were able to do it. Um, And so it was, you know, and it was one of those ones that takes time. And, and, you know, I learned a a lesson in that about when you do these camera moves, how much time it takes to pull it off because they're long shots. And when you reset for a long shot, there's a lot to reset. Like we have to reset those tables and, you know, when you throw a table, they break. (laughs) So, you know, we have to fix the table and set it right back up and, and those types of things. So, you know, there's a lot that went into that shot. We I think we did, I think we shot that maybe three or four times. Wow. Yeah. And so it took that much, but there was, you know, there's timing. There's a lot of timing there. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I was, I was outside the building calling out the actions and stuff like that. And again, another challenge as a director, me having to, you know, direct people from outside the building, watching just a little monitor and making sure that like the framing stays the proper way and all those Mm -hmm. different things. So, you know, for, it's a very challenging shot and I was definitely like, again, like I set high expectations for myself. So it was one of those things that like, this is the first time I ever directed a shot like that. But, you know, I, you know, we ended up pulling it off because yeah, I would, it was great. And it's very surprising mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, way it unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was because I challenged myself and I, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more than the standard, standard fodder that you would find in a Friday the 13th film. So we
1: digressed a little bit, but about an hour ago, maybe or so, <laughs> uh, we mentioned a surprise, uh, towards mm-hmm. the end of the film. Um, and Russell, this is one of your favorite scenes, um, this, this whole part, that so. whole sequence, I, mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed. Go for it. No, I don't want to, I don't want to steal it. your thunder. No, you go for no, it. it. It's all you, man. So,
0: <laughs> I, I, one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to talk to you mm-hmm. about this is because I have, it's like, we're, you know, I met you in January, 2016, like I said, and you and I have kind of like followed each other since mm-hmm. then, as far as, you know, what are you working on? What are you doing now? Mm-hmm. And this is a passion project for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you've mentioned like, yes, you you wanted to advance your career. Yes. You know, you, you, you're expecting something from this if it turns out well, but everything that you've said since we've started talking is community and people coming forth and people wanting to do you favors and people wanting to bring their best. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what that has to be is this is a passion project. And that's inspirational for other people. And I think it opened, it sounds like it opened doors and opportunities Mm -hmm. for you and the film. Yeah. So one of those is a surprise. Mm -hmm. And it is when a particular character shows up who you've mentioned a couple of times.
3: Yeah.
0: How did you end up with Tom Matthews?
3: (sighs) Wow. That was, that was like so before I even go before I even get into that, I'm just going to say that Tom Matthews was like my hero when I was a kid. Um, obviously I've already Tommy talked Jarvis, Tommy yeah. Jarvis when I was, a, you know, when I, part six was my favorite Friday the 13th. And I thought that Tom delivered such a great performance in that film. You know, I love the production value of that film. The ending, fighting on the lake and the, the lake of fire, and oh yeah, you know, it's,
0: it's a very sympathetic it's, performance.
3: It's yeah, and, and it's great, and it's it's kind of like the ending. You know, it's a nice little you know ending to Tommy's story in a certain way. Um, you know, I also love Tom in Return of the Living Dead. He was one of my favorite oh, actors. Yeah. And there was a time I want to say, um, I don't know, I'm just I just moved out to L.A. and my friend took me to my first Monster Palooza, and Tom was there. And I remember seeing him at the table, and I literally couldn't even talk to him because i was like i don't know what to say to him like i like what do i say like i feel so weird walking up and saying like oh you're my hero and all these different things like i i just i didn't feel comfortable doing that i didn't know how i ever wanted to meet him and so by the time i actually got the courage up to go up and talk to him he had taken a break (laughs) and he wasn't there (laughs) and then i ended up having to leave in the next couple of minutes so i didn't end up getting to talk to him and it was a missed opportunity and so lo and behold um you know, however many years later in, in, I would say December of 2016, um, you know, luck and behold, Barry J., our, our executive producer, was um, working on a business deal. And the people that he was working with ended up knowing Tom Matthews personally and knowing that Barry was a big Friday the 13th fan. They were like, you know what? We here, we want to do you a favor because we're, we're heading into this. We, we want to get you a dinner with Tom Matthews. That way you can meet him and ask him about the film. We know you're a big fan. And, you know, we'll, we'll set this up for you. So they set it up, and Barry went to dinner with Tom and his wife. And... Um, and while they were there, they talked everything Friday the 13th, and eventually Never Hike Alone came up, and Barry was very proud of the project and was like, hey, you know, I love Friday the 13th so much, I actually invested in this little fan film, you should check it out. And at the time, we hadn't released the second trailer, we only had the first one, but Tom saw the first trailer and to a certain degree, right then and there, was was intrigued and was impressed, and he was like, wow, these guys are doing a really good job. And, and Barry kind of, out of, you know, thank God he asked, he said would you think about doing a cameo? And he said, yeah, I'll think about it. And about a week later, you know, Barry would, you know, talk to me about it and he was like, I talked to Tom. It's really great. I pitched him. He's thinking about being in it. Like we got to think of a role for him. And I was like, okay. And so Barry set up this lunch and we went up to, you know, so one day I show up and you know, and there's, Tommy Jarvis pulls up in his truck and, and gets <laughs> out and shakes my hand. And we sit down and we have lunch. And right. Sit-
0: wait, how appropriate is it that Tommy Jarvis a Yeah,
3: truck? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and you know, we sat down and, and you know, I, I want to say from, from our first meeting, we just bonded. Uh, we just got each other. Um, and he was really easy to talk to and he was really open and and he was very, he had a lot of great things about to say what he had already seen. And at that point we hadn't released the second trailer and I showed him the second trailer and he was like, wow, that's even better. Like, yeah, like let's sit down and talk and come up with something for Tommy and see how we would put him in the film and how he would fit and, and, and see what's there. And, you know, in that moment I was like, I was so excited. Uh. I was like, what this will do for fans. Like when they see Tommy in it and I came home and I talked to my team and they were all waiting with bated breath. Like, what did he say? And I was like, he said, yes, he's going to do it. And you know, right away, a couple of people on the team were like, okay, so let's do like a press release and all this stuff. And I went, no, stop. No. I was like, think about this. We don't tell anybody any of this. We don't say a word. We don't use it to our advantage. We don't try to make money with it. We don't try to milk it because it's going to be so much more powerful when they never see it coming. It's going to be the sucker punch that, you know, that knocks them out cold, that puts them on their ass and go, whoa, we just watched something special.
1: And thank you for doing that because that's exactly what happened with me. Like yeah. when he came out, I
3: screamed at my TV. It was like,
1: <laughs> oh my God.
3: Yeah, I actually did the same thing. <laughs> I like, I got to admit. <laughs> so So it was, I think that that was the most appealing thing to know that it was going to be such a... It was going to be a great moment for fans. It wasn't going to be ruined for them. It wasn't going to be. Um,
0: Which, as you said earlier, is the problem with the way movies are handled
3: now. Yeah, that, you know, everybody wants, to, like you said, everybody wants a safe bet. Everybody wants to go in and know what they're getting, and they want to know every detail before they go in so they can. I don't know. I, don't, I think it's something about, like, there's the challenge of trying to figure out all the information before everyone else does that makes somebody feels like. I don't know. It just it. I don't know what that appeal does because I feel like it ruins the cinematic experience. But, but from there, when when Tom said yes, that was again. It was just another level of pressure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, understandably but, so. And and so then I had to start rewriting the end scene. And the end scene used to be fairly simple. Um, we did the hallucination. He says he's still out there and the driver would say the the famous line what the hell is going on back there but it wasn't necessarily executed the same way and they drove off into the sunrise and we were supposed to leave the audience thinking that we know that Jason's still out there and he could still be coming after him and he's affected this character in a certain way but yeah there's the film we we get a hallucination kill but we don't have an actual kill on screen and nobody died and it was something that at the time I was still trying to figure out because I knew that people wanted to see mul- multiple people die. It was a challenge I wanted to try and, and, and weave into the film because it was something that was being requested by the fans. And again, try to surprise them with it. And when Tom came into it, I was like, you know, I I had reserved two roles for the two actors that were in it. Cause they're friends of mine, uh, Katie and um, Katie and, and Robert. Um, they both acted in my previous short film, the red room. They came out and, and they were great to work with. And, you know they're they're good friends of mine and and we have a good time making stuff together so I was like you guys are definitely in this I'm pulling you guys in you guys are my EMTs we're going to have a lot of fun and originally mm-hmm. the stunt coordinator Jess Bennett was going to make a special appearance as the driver and so I didn't and cuz Jess was already doing enough on the film I said Jess you know I think I have an idea if I'm going to slip Tommy in I'm going to make him be the driver because what a great moment to have him say what the hell's going on back oh, here yeah. I think that would be the moment to introduce him but Tom was the one who introduced the idea of expanding the moment and really playing it up and creating a scene out of it. And really it's like the first 45 minutes is its own movie and the end is kind of its own short. Um, it actually, you know, the production of it felt like a very quick turnaround short film that takes five to seven minutes. And then the way that we designed that production, that weekend was built around shooting a short that would be five to seven minutes. So, so we ended up doing that and and we went through many iterations. I wrote different versions, shared them with Tom and um you know and I think for Tom he really wanted to feel like it would be a natural progression for Tommy that we wanted to know why Tommy was there and like why is he the driver of this ambulance and what's going on and where is he in his life and and really making that feel something that even though we're not going to get into it in the scene that is him being Tommy he could feel comfortable in his role and what he's supposed to be and you know, the things that, that we think about off screen, you know, I started to think about Tommy and his life and going into those moments. Like I was doing a direct call out to Tommy in the previous scene when he's seeing those hallucinations, that's from a Tommy scene. So it's like, there's so much, there's this, you know, there's such a similarity between these two characters. And, and so Tom, um, you know, has this intense guilt from part six, um, because he accidentally resurrects Jason and gets a bunch of people killed and he gets his girlfriend's dad killed. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that this character has continued on in his life the same way. Yes, he's conquered Jason to a certain degree, but there's still going to be this trauma and this um this sadness in his life for for in this guilt in his life that he's dealt with and you can imagine that someone who has guilt and trauma and has been around a lot of traumatic experiences could almost be addicted to them. So becoming an EMT, becoming an ambulance driver allows him to kind of fill that need of helping people. And, being out there like he's the per- he's the first responder, you know what I mean? In the, in these films he's the one who takes action, he's the man of action. So you can imagine that as a paramedic he would be the person you want out there because he'd be the coolest under pressure. I mean, what's a car accident when you've been chased by an axe-wielding maniac? It's like like these are the things that 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 allow him to kind of, you know, that allow him to continue living, I think in a certain way because because he still harbors that fear and that guilt. And when he shows up in the film, it's like you can imagine that he's been fulfilling this role for many years and it's been quiet and dormant. And you can see this slow building dread in him in that in that final scene because things are starting to feel a little bit too familiar and mm-hmm. things seem a little bit off and he can't quite put his finger on it. And it's been so long, can it really be it? And then you know, finally when it reveals himself and he goes, son of a bitch, I knew it. It was like, we wanted that that kind of like I almost feel like the film had been building itself through all that time. And when Tom shows up is when we kind of reveal to the audience that we've secretly dug a tunnel into the actual franchise and and hijacked it and have continued the story. And if you talk to a lot of Friday the 13th fans, I think that one thing they've always requested is that we kind of wanted to see that story play out. And we'd like to pick up where that story left off. That'd be something we'd really like to see in the theater. And before this moment, before we did it, no offense to Tom, but I don't think Warner brothers was going to pick up the phone anytime soon or paramount was going to pick up the phone anytime soon and concentrate on a Tommy Jarvis film. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hopefully, you know, I really hope that we just prove the point that, yeah, it can work. And, you know, in bringing back these alumni, it's worth it because they're the soul of the franchise. I mean, we were just talking about community. They've been carrying this community for, you know, three decades, you know, almost going into its fourth decade. So, Why not have that? You have, you know, now Halloween's going to be made. You're bringing back John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis, and you're resetting it back to part one and and doing all the things you wanted to do. You know, you're doing the same thing with Don Mancini and and the way he's taken over, you know, well, not taken over. He's always owned, you know, the Child's Play franchise, but the way that he's kind of reinvented it Mm -hmm. and brought it back and found its audience and is building his his films for his audience and bringing back Andy Barkley and making him a big part of the new film and, and creating a new character that, that characters can um, that can learn and and grow with. And I think that that was one of the cool things about Never Hike Alone is that we created a new character that you could see living on in this franchise. And he's connected with an old character that is going to understand what he's going through more than anybody. And if we're allowed, you know, in the future to explore their story together and where their story goes, you're going to see that, you know, they're almost meant for each other and they were meant to find each other in order to bring this whole story to a close of, you know, all these, all this guilt and all this, this feeling that Tom has had over these years has now been passed on to this kid mm-hmm. who accidentally resurrected Jason is now brought on his onslaught and is about to unleash Jason back on Camp Crystal Lake after 20 something yeah, years, which
0: is very similar to what, what uh, Tom did. Yeah,
3: exactly. And so they, yeah, that's why they're like, they're, they're very similar in in the character type. And so, you know, to kind of tell that story was for me, like a Friday the 13th fans dream to figure out how it's going to bridge back and bring us into the new generation. And how did that uh, moment play at Telluride at the premiere? Audible gasps. (laughs) And like people looking at each other, like, really? Like, oh my God. And luckily, you know, like I said, like Tom's been a big supporter of us. He was there with us in Telluride. He was there on stage. He was, we were able to talk about it and, he had such glowing things to say about the film. I mean, he had really only seen his scenes. We didn't really show him much of the film. He, you know, he always asked like, like, like his worry, and and I get it. He was like, "Are people like gonna like? Is it weird that I just show up?" And I'm like, "That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point." No, but, yeah, yeah. but
0: everything that you just said is like, uh, you know, like Mike said, like he was screaming at the television. Like the, but the moment makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like the, as soon as he opens the door,
3: it was like. Well, of course, that's what he's been doing all these years. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, he could have become a forest ranger. He could have become all these different things. But I I just thought that, like, the paramedic was the most direct way for him to be helping people and being in these situations because he's out there actually trying to save lives. Um, And, you know, there's, you know people have been asking a lot for like, is there a sequel to never hike alone? And yes, there is. And a lot of it delves into the way that Tommy deals with it and, and plays with that. And, you know, we don't spend a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say we'd spend a lot of the film if we were able to shoot it exploring that, but we set it up and we show where he's at emotionally in his life and Mm -hmm. what's been going on and and where he's, where he stood. Um, and I think that that's, again, something that's important to the franchise. I think that that's something that carries over from part five and part six, because you're following this character and you're watching him develop and grow, um, and that's what audiences like. They like to grow with characters. They like to see them come back. They like to to see how they're doing now. Uh, and also, I think it's yeah.
0: it's partially um, a respect for the fans yes. of the franchise. Like, look, we're investing this. At least give us the respect of not some weird one-off story mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense with the rest of our universe. The universe which we are are willing to support. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think the 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 fact that you were able to pull you know, the Tommy Jarvis character back in is Mm -hmm. again, it's just a sign like this is passion. I mean, this is the, this is something that people will invest in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you're getting the reaction you are, in my opinion.
3: Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I just knew how important it would be to fans. I just, you know, I, I, you know, there was a version, there was actually a version um, at one point where we were in rewrites where I guess I got into a really dark place and everybody died. Like the last shot was Jason climbing into the ambulance and just murdering the shit out of Kyle. And you just saw blood <laughs> flying up on the windows oh, man. and you pulled up, you know, that drone shot was supposed to pull up over the ambulance and you saw the three bodies on the ground and tilt up and, you know, never hike alone. The ambulance was sh- shaking. Yeah. And the ambulance is <laughs> shaking it and stuff like that. And Tom, you know, rightfully so said, I think the fans are going to go set if you kill Tommy. And I went, yeah, you're right. But I was trying to like, and what I explained to him, I was like, I wasn't necessarily trying to kill you. I was just trying to answer the note that I've been keep getting of like, we want to see multiple bodies. We want to kill people. And it was again, my wife being a super genius that she is, is she said, well, how did it end before Tommy was in it? And I was like, they just drove off. And she was like, why can't they do that now? And then I remembered, I was like, that's right. We pulled Tommy off screen. We never see him die on screen. And I did that on purpose because I didn't want to see him get it. It just happens off screen. And I was like, he can save the day, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when like I went from the moment of I thought about the moment of um, him opening the doors about how good that would feel, and how much better it would feel to see him actually be the hero and save our character and get him out of there before Jason can get him and and kind of allude to this adventure that these two characters are going to go on and you know bringing up the famous line "Hey maggot head" and then like you know one of my favorite lines "Remember me asshole," which is just like. Again, it it reminds me of that scene in part six when he's calling out Jason on the boat. He's like, "Come on out here, you pussy!" And he's like, "You no. know, like who's crazy enough to call out Jason?" But like, and if anyone is is meant to survive an attack by Jason, it would be Tommy. And even though he's bleeding from the head and then he's got all these other injuries, probably from from you know fighting out there, that he was able to pull through it and in the final moment save this save this you know this helpless kid. And you know to watch them you know i would really love the opportunity to tell their story about like how they're going to end up healing each other and and how they're going to unite to against this evil to try and hopefully stop it and how their stories are going to help connect each other's paths that they've been on and how they're going to need each other to to complete not only the, their story but the story of Friday the 13th and bring it to kind of a close to a certain degree it would be you know i think it would be a lot of fun to explore that
0: in this conversation you just mentioned if you're allowed to go on yeah so this was supposed to be originally a 10 to 12 minute short Mm -hmm. uh obviously you found people willing to support you you pulled this together obviously you know your intensity your passion for this made this a much bigger thing it's now Mm -hmm. a 55 minute film yeah which you know messes with a mythology that is so loved by so many people and yet it's owned by a major studio Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) and you were getting a lot of attention, especially when uh, a Friday the 13th earlier this year, there was a, there was Mm -hmm. a production up and running that was going to be shooting a Friday the 13th movie and it got shut down. Mm -hmm. And so, as we said earlier, all eyes went to you. So how do you deal with that? And, and you know, it's like, what are the ramifications and have you, have you run into any problems?
3: We've been fortunate enough not to run into any problems. And, you know, one thing that I, that I do want to say is as much as we've been, you know, as much slack as the, as the studios will get for not being able to produce a Friday the 13th fan film, you have to give them credit for not stopping us and allowing us to go on because the first thing we tried to do to make sure that we could do this was make as much noise as possible. You know, we actually got a, an article in bloody disgusting. We got, you know, a lot of press backing us up and showing our trailer and, and making a big noise and, you know, you know, kicking the tires a little bit. Yeah. You know, we put the disclaimers on there. We did everything that you read about when, if you're going to do a fan film, like these are the rules you should follow. It's kind of like an unwritten rule book, but the, the, the major rule is like the first rule is they can shut you down anytime they want. And it's up to you if you want to take the risk. And for me, it was worth the risk because this is the story I've always wanted to tell. I mean, ever since I wanted to become a filmmaker, I've wanted to make a Friday the 13th film and, you know when you're young you imagine that you're going to move out and do the things you want to do and you're just going to find that job and it's going to be easy and then you come out here and you realize that your career can take you off in a completely different direction and you'll never find the thing that you want to do and if you really want to do it you just have to put your life on hold and go after it and that's where the passion led me on this and so i went after it and as the film got bigger and bigger i tried to make as much noise as possible to say hey, if you're out there and you can hear me and I am stepping on your toes, by all means, send me an email, send me a cease and desist, and I will stop because I respect you and I respect the legal process. And I'm just hoping that you see what I'm doing as is an act of tribute. And I actually want to help the franchise. I want people to watch this and maybe, you know, this might be some kid's first Friday, the 13th film. And mm-hmm. now he's going to go and he's going to go buy your box set. So you're welcome <laughs> for yeah, that sale. Exactly. And, and it's going to be, it's going to get somebody interested in it and they're going to see, maybe, maybe they were a casual fan and they're going to look at the crime scenes and maybe go back and watch the first one and realize how connected it really is. So I, it's going to hopefully pique the interest. And I think that they saw the, the potential in that, the ability that it could help actually build the brand and help them when they're actually struggling. Um, you know and and so you know friday the 13th finds itself in an odd place right now because it's about to transfer rights again um You know for the people who don't know uh, so many ever many years ago when i believe warner brothers made the purchase for interstellar in that deal was releasing the rights to friday the 13th back to paramount so michael bay's platinum dunes could pick up the rights because brad fuller and andrew forum happened to be really big fans of the franchise and they were into the remake game they just done texas chainsaw massacre they had done the hitcher they had done amityville and it made sense that that friday the 13th was going to be one of the next on their list and you know as a fan at that time you know i was in college and um i was just moving out to to i think the first year i moved out to um california when i was out here in 2008 before 2009 is when they started to do the reboot on uh, Friday the 13th and i was really excited finally a new Friday the 13th they were going to go back and to explore and they were going to hopefully go back and maybe start to put the the franchise back together and pick up where they left off cuz it's back with paramount and They kind of did, and they kind of didn't. They tried to reset it, and I think in the process of resetting and bringing in some new elements, they, I don't know, I think that you get a lot of 50-50 response on that. I think when you talk to fans of the franchise, some of them love it, some of them hate it, and there was something about the fact that the film came out and did really well the first weekend, and then it dropped off. Right. Ever since that moment, I remember that feeling like I remember reading the articles about like, oh, that's the, the record, you know, they broke the record for the most percentage drop off in, in, in one week span and the way that they made it feel negative about the the franchise rather than just celebrating about how much money they made in their first weekend and about how many people wanted to see Friday the 13th and about how many people wanted to see the story continue and they definitely left it open for it to continue, and it never did. They stalled on Shannon and Swift's second draft, um, which they just started releasing pages for. They called it The Death of Jason Voorhees, which would have been very interesting to, to mm-hmm. pursue. You know, they promised going into the snow. They promised doing some very interesting things and, you know, expanding on Derek Mears as, as Jason, which would have been, you know, fantastic for the fans because it's a, it's a great performance. Um and then that got stalled. And then, you know, I think that was when the boom of found footage came out and Paranormal Activity was doing very really right. well. So, you know, you, you hear the stories that, yeah, a Paramount executive came in and said, listen, like, this is where the money is and this is how we're going to do it. So let's think about a Friday the 13th is found footage. And at that point, they bring on David Bruckner, who's a very brilliant director. He's done some great, you know, stuff on, on films like VHS. Um, he, I think he does both one on VHS 1 and VHS 2. Southbound, he did The Signal. Um and he's continued to go on and do many other things and, and he was a really good fit. You know, he's a young filmmaker. I think he had a really good, fresh perspective and, and you know, he came in and tried to do the found footage angle and I, I believe at that time Brad fuller in in in, in, inter- in interviews that he's done said he was the one who put his foot down and said no we're not doing a found footage friday the 13th this isn't the film that this isn't why we bought the rights we didn't want to do this film we want to do a traditional friday and eventually convinced the producers to let them do a traditional friday kept david on they brought on nick and costa um i think from channel zero if i'm getting that wrong i'm sorry but you know he's, he, he's a good writer and they and they wrote a draft and I actually had somebody, a good friend of mine, give me that draft. I won't say who. Um, And I got to read it, and I actually really enjoyed it. And I thought that they had a lot of really great elements of Friday the 13th in there. And, you know, going back and visiting the old camp, it's on the other side of the lake, and going out in the canoes. like Visually, I could see that story in my head, and I could see how scary it could be. Some of the things they had Jason do, some of the things they had Jason survive, I thought that they were very clever, and, and it was the Jason that I wanted to see on screen. Um, and unfortunately, um, anyone who works in the industry knows that that Paramount went through a big regime change, and in that regime change, whoever was shepherding Friday the Thirteenth left, and someone new came on and wanted a new take, and so David and Nick's script got canned, and they reset again, and they brought on Breck Eisner and uh, the the writer from Prisoners, I think Aaron Guzanowski, if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm and sure. th- that and that's the other script that came out, right. um, and that was the one that they canceled in January after Rings Two didn't do so well. Um and you know, I think that one, we I think Friday the thirteenth fans were very upset when we heard that it was gonna be not only cancelled, but cancelled because of Rings Two, a franchise that has nothing to do with Friday the thirteenth and, and has a different or not Rings Two, but Rings. Uh, yeah. Rings. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, we sit there and to Friday the thirteenth fans, this is no brainer. You're talking about like a film from two thousand two that yeah, we liked and we didn't like the sequel that much like there was nobody clamoring for a rings and like maybe you bet the farm on that one, but you had a safer bet with Friday the 13th because Friday the 13th is a known brand that people want to see. And we've been asking for, for a long time. Um, and so we were bummed at first and then the script released. And again, like, I'm a big fan of the Crazies remake. I actually think Last Witch Hunter is a a really good film. Prisoners is obviously a beautiful film and very you know intense. Very creepy. But the 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 script that was put together for that really wasn't Friday the Thirteenth. You know, it introduced a lot of elements that. I think would have sent the fans into a, a frenzy in a bad way. They would well, have...
0: that, w- that was the yeah. one which was supposedly the origin story, correct? The origin story. And they
3: had the dad. And Well, and, even, and, yeah. even
0: when they announced that the backlash online immediately mm. was, we don't want an origin mm-hmm. story, you know? And I think, and personally, in my opinion, that might've been because we've, we, <laughs> you know, when Rob Zombie remade Halloween, mm-hmm. he created an origin story that doesn't work with the mythology. Mm hmm. And I and I you know and I know there are people who love the Rob Zombie Halloween, yeah. but but if you look at the franchise as a whole, his mythology takes all of the tension, all of the fear mm. out because he, he you know it's like oh he's a poor abused child mm-hmm. it's like that's that's, that's yeah, the cheapest it... shot. So and and so I think maybe that might have influenced the reaction because I remember when that press announcement came out of like oh we're doing an origin story and some of the the boards immediately lit up with no. Yeah. It's like I, I won't even go see it
3: because
0: mm-hmm. like, that's not the Friday the 13th I'm looking for.
3: Yeah, and I know that I probably would have walked in walked in and out of the theater on that film and been probably disappointed just because, you know, Jason doesn't really show up until page 67. The Jason, as we know, the way he's introduced in the mythologies, it just didn't seem to match up with my favorite version of it, which is the version from the 80s. And, you know, in Never Hike Alone, I wanted to feel like that, Jason is the one that we brought into our film. The the one that you remember from the eighties where we left him off, where he is undead and he is unstoppable and Mm -hmm. it takes a, a complete act of luck or God to take him down. And, um, and that film was so built on trying to create this narrative that I don't think the fans were asking for. And I don't necessarily think fit into the actual lore. Um, You know, I think that one thing I always say, the thing that upset me about bringing Elias into the film was um, any fan of Friday the 13th who's watched all the behind the scenes things should remember an interview with Betsy Palmer when she talked about who she was and who she became when she took on the role of Pamela Voorhees and and tried to become sympathetic to this woman and why she's killing. And, you know, the story very stuck with me because, you know the story she tells is the one of a single mother and I grew up the son of a single mother for, for many years of my life before I was lucky enough to have a stepdad that stepped into the picture. But those early years in my life, when I was a young child, you know, I formed a special bond with my mom because it was just the two of us. And when I heard Betsy Palmer talk about this, I kind of understood her on a level that I, that I think only a few people could. And, you know, she talked about having, you know, a high school sweetheart that, you know, that she went steady with and eventually, you know, they had sex and, and, jason was you know she became pregnant with jason and in the moment when this person was supposed to step up and be a man they walked away and they left her on her alone all alone and so you know when you think about that type of person about the life that she would have lived in the 1940s and the 1950s you know raising a child out of wedlock um he's deformed possibly you know mentally deficient um And what people would say about her and the way that they would treat her and the way that they would treat her as an outcast in such a, you know, a very, you know, stern religious environment um, and who she was as that person. So bringing in Elias and having him be the cause or having him be the reason why Jason is evil never made sense to me because that wasn't what made Jason evil. And and in the sense is that Jason was never evil and neither was Pamela. Pamela was a victim. And Pamela was this person who was living this life of constantly being an outcast and jason was living this life of constantly being an outcast because of the way he looked and eventually this mother and son who were bonded were brought to camp crystal lake and for the first time they were able to settle in and possibly be accepted and you know one important thing that's a theme to me in my film is the bedroom that we find and I actually that's the only thing i really rewrite from the originals is you know one thing that never made sense to me was that jason and, and pamela had a house Because, again, I'm thinking of this woman in in the 40s and 50s with a single mother who's been traveling around trying to find a home. Like, really? She's going to be able to afford a house in town? Like, wouldn't it actually make more sense to me that, you know, when we found the way that this camp was laid out, actually came up with the story of that they showed up to camp and they necessarily like the people who worked at the camp lived in town and they drove in and they worked in the day and they went back home and only a few people actually stayed there. So when she needed a place to stay, she couldn't afford a place in town. So the Christie's made room for her in the upstairs pantry above the kitchen where she worked. And so they pushed a shelf aside and they hung up some sheets and they put a bed up there and, and some furniture. And, and there was their little home that they created in a place where they can be themselves and not be judged and not be, you know, outcasts. And they could actually enjoy their lives for the first time. And then after that's all set up, her son dies. And everything that she built towards and this happiness that they have is just taken away from her. And that's the final straw. That's, that's the beginning of the turn. That the fact that her son was taken away from her, the person that she loved most in the world, the only person that understood her, the only person that she could be with for the entire 12 years that he was alive. Um, she was alone again. And part of that is what drove her crazy. And you know, it was part of Elias ditching her Um, Right away that led to that and you know It's the loss of her son that drives her to kill that drives her to get that revenge and that rage And it isn't until her death That that rage is then switched to jason because she kills in his name and he kills in her name And I think that that's such a poetic story And when you you delve into that that it's the love between these two characters that turned into this victims becoming the victimizers is what drives friday the 13th and I think that not that i don't and again not that i don't think that these people who are coming up with these stories are talented filmmakers they are but when it comes to the lore of this story and what makes it key and what makes it unique when you step outside of that realm it's no longer friday the 13th to me it's no longer what victor miller's script is about and why this this franchise lasted as long as it did jason kept coming back because he's killing in his mother's name and they do get to that eventually in in that film but they muddy it with the dad character. And I think that that's something that's a mistake when, when fans, or I don't want to say anything fans do is, is a mistake. I think that, you know, there's a diversity to Friday the 13th that needs to be celebrated. Each film fan is a little bit different, each film is a little bit different. We have our favorites, and we all kind of want to see certain things go on. And some films we don't like, but other films we do. Mm-hmm. So I never want to say that, like, a fan is wrong. But to me, like, Elias has no place in this world because he was never a part of Jason's life. He left the world. He left the world. And to bring him in and and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden paint him with all of the reasons why Jason is evil or to give him any sort of power takes away from everything else that you I think it's Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the issues that Jason Goes to Hell ran into was the fact that they introduced the concept of of Jason having, you know, a half sister and family members and things that they could and all this like mythology and things that were never introduced before and were never explained before that we were all of a sudden supposed to buy into. And the problem is it's just too big of a bite for fans to swallow in one gulp. It's not slowly set up over time. It's something that was just jammed in our face. And there's some fun stuff to Jason Goes to Hell. The opening chase scene is very classic Friday. It's, I mean, it's it's like as Friday as it gets with the music and the way the shots are set up and the way it's executed. And then, you know, they turn it on his head. They blow Jason up and they go really into that 90s style horror movie that was going on at that time. I mean, it really fit that tone of what they were doing. But again, that wasn't it didn't turn into a favorable tone for the, for that franchise so it's
0: something that you you've brought up i think you have a wonderful moment in never hike alone um mm-hmm. where he finds something in that bedroom yeah. which is about the relationship between him and his mother yeah and and it's a very touching moment and you know and it he and he doesn't understand it so i'm uh what's the character's name kyle Kyle. yeah Yeah, he doesn't understand what kyle doesn't understand what he's seeing but he knows that there's some significance to this Mm -hmm. and you know i think that's you and and that is literally the the, he discovers the core Mm -hmm. and that is the moment
3: where the film kicks into high gear yeah and it is and it's like it all kicks in like It's when does Kyle cross the line? It's when you cross the line into mother's territory. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that Jason's there to protect. And that's what Jason's been trying to protect this entire time. And he wants to preserve. So kind of one of the thinking that went into Never Hike Alone is the fact that Jason's been alone all this time. And Jason hasn't been killing people because no one's been going out to Camp Crystal Lake. Right. Everyone's learned their lesson. It's been quiet. And there's a certain contentment, I think, in Jason to just go and recreate this life that the last happy memory he had was up in that attic with his mom you know reading bedtime stories and her giving him that card and stuff like that i think someone was living here you know if the fans ask well why is that stuff still there it's like well you know after pamela left like there's probably some artifacts that got left behind i imagine because there's a cookbook there that you can see on the on the shelf and the oh way I, I look- did not notice that actually. Yeah, you'll if you look you look closely on like when you look, you'll see that there's the cookbook, and you can imagine that her cookbooks would have been there. Oh yeah. You know, in storage, even though they shut it down in nineteen fifty nine, I think, or fifty eight or fifty nine. They closed it down for twenty years. But I'm sure the cookbooks and the things that were there and the artifacts were put into shelves and stored away. And when they showed back up in nineteen eighty to rebuild the camp, they were pulling things out of storage. And some of Jason's old things and some of Pamela's old things were in there just because they got stored away and forgotten about. And Jason's been walking around this camp camp for 20 years searching for remnants of his old life searching for things that remind him of his mother and finding a photo and finding her books and you know I can imagine like off screen at some point over time like finding the books and then that postcard falling out and realizing that even though he's a monster and even though that he is there to kill anyone who enters that camp and 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 puts this pressure that he's doing it because of this lost love that he has for his mom and he's killing in her name. And he's brought back because of, you know, the supernatural, you know, we say in, in ghost stories that, you know, the reason why places become haunted and the reasons why poltergeists and things exist is because a body or a life is removed from this realm in a tragic fashion and it ripples out through the supernatural and it has an effect on that area and it has effect on that building. That's why we feel that houses are haunted or, or woods are haunted because we hear that people were doing satanic rituals out in the woods and now we have this intense fear. And even though in the real world, we logic it out and we say, well, ghosts aren't real and things aren't real in film. Those are the places where you can explore it. And I think that that is where Friday the 13th can find a very good foundation is in that supernatural, something that helped elevate the franchise and the back end of it when they got into part six, seven, and eight. There were things in there that were fun to explore. The execution wasn't always, you know, top notch, but it opened up this door to Jason and it made you realize that this entire time we could be dealing with a very supernatural element here. And that's why he always comes back and it doesn't ruin his story. It actually enhances it. You know, the fact that like the death of some person could bring someone back from the dead, um, which is the way that we portray the story in our campfire stories. He says that when she's dead, he came back from his grave. And I think that's a very, you know, I, I wanted to make that clear that in my head, you know, In order for Pamela to do what she did, Jason really has to be dead.
4: The kid's mom, who was also the camp's cook, blamed the counselors for her son's death. And one night she went crazy, killing almost everyone before getting her own head chopped off by the only survivor. My brother also said that Jason, who was still in the lake, witnessed his mother's death and returned from the grave to seek out her revenge on anyone who entered the camp. (laughs) or some shit like that. I don't really know. It's stupid, but man, that story used to scare
3: the shit out of me. Um, if you leave up any door where you can think that like Jason could have walked out of the woods in any moment and been like, yo ma, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm right here. I'm just living in this (laughs) shack. And you know, and it's like for him to like ignore that and not be able to like walk around and not realize that they would have never seen each other. You know, you want to talk about the plausibility of Friday the 13th. Obviously that's a bad conversation to have, but if you look back at it and But
0: hysterically fun sometimes,
3: yeah, hysterically fun and you can argue about it, but you know, from, you know, working and, and being so, love with the storytelling and things like that i took it as a challenge to be like what types of, of of things could you tell without upsetting the balance but just fill in a little bit of information that actually makes things m- make a little bit more sense and actually take the challenge to improve the story quality of friday the 13th to a certain degree so it it improves the value of it and makes it even more fun to watch because now these mm. characters that you've invested in you find out just a little bit more about them In a way that makes you care about them a little bit more and makes them understand a little bit more. So when you see them in action, you understand their motivation and you understand what they're killing for. You understand, you know, what they're trying to survive for. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that path, I mean, realizing that like almost a sympathy for Jason in a certain way, like you understand why he's doing what he's doing and you know that he's killing in the name of this, you know, egregious crime that happened to him being neglected and being ignored and, and being allowed to drown. Um, and die because people were too naive and and too caught up in their own life and their own world to even care about him. Um, And that's the reason why why Pamela comes back. And, and, you know, thinking about a mother losing her son, especially a single mother losing her only child, the type of trauma that's there. I mean, you can't help but feel for somebody like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there were, you know, Aside from you know just the never hike alone two aspect of it, I mean, there's stories about Pamela that I'd like to explore on screen. You know, I think that she's super underutilized, and it's been a long time since we've seen her in action, and it would be nice to see it. And I think part of Breck Eisner and, and Goodzanowski's script was that they did make a very strong Pamela, and there were very good Pamela scenes in that in that script where I was really into their story, like when they're walking home. Um, from camp one day and she's talking to him and it's just, I don't know. It's a moment that, yeah, as a Friday the 13th fan, I would like to see. I just mm-hmm. thought that there were elements just stepping on that. And if they could have just focused on that and singled it out and, and made it realize that that's the motivation of like what this whole franchise is about, that there is some, there is some story juice there and that that's worth exploring. Um, and it's something I'd like to explore. I mean, I have a whole pitch that I'd love to do that's just all about Pamela and about the story that I told you about her growing, you know, yeah. in the 50s, finding Camp Crystal Lake and having it all take away from her and then watch her descent into madness. I think that would make a fantastic story, whether that's a 90-minute a film or it's a 60-minute episode on a on a Netflix series about Friday the 13th. Right. You know, I think that that is something that fans would bite into and enjoy and, and get, you know, and understand, like, see a little bit of a different side, but but now understand the character and, and almost you know being able to then go back and watch the original film and have it even have more impact. And I think that's what you want to do when you bring these new films into the elements and introduce things to the franchise is that it should elevate the old films as much as it tells a new story that elevates the franchise in itself, is that you should not try to erase the past but embrace it and elevate it and have it and improve it. And it's like, you know, it's like doing a renovation on a house. It's like the framework is there. You just need to, you know, put the extra room in and just show people that there's room here for more. Right. Um, Yeah. And so that's kind of like, you know, that, that became a big inspiration is that I, like, even though Never Hike Alone is a centralized story about Kyle and Jason, the background is actually full of lore and setups for other stories. And it's something I took very seriously when I put it in, because I wanted, because one important thing about Friday the 13th is that we always know the stories keep going. And we know that one of the big trip ups that they have over the long line is that they make this film and then they write themselves into a corner because then they have to make a sequel and they have to try and explain what happened. And oftentimes they have to ignore it. And instead of doing that, my approach was I'm going to try and create as many footholds for other stories to tie into this story so it can become the, the center wheel on a spoke that I can reference things. And when you watch one movie, it's going to connect to another movie. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Friday the 13th could benefit from because you know it's going to expand. And you can reward audiences for paying attention when they see those things connected. And I think that more than ever now, because of the internet and because we love to talk about films online, those are the things that fans love to talk about. So give them those things to talk about and, and think about that way. Don't. Sometimes you get happy accidents, but other times if you, if you give them, if you don't treat the audience like they're idiots, they're going to reward you for it because they're going to find the secrets that you've left behind. I can't like. I get a lot of emails too about like they're happy they see all the Easter eggs in there and like they mm-hmm. get a kick out of it. I specifically did that because if you go on any Friday the Thirteenth website like Friday the Thirteenth Franchise dot com, every single film they have a list of every continuity error, every technical <laughs> error, everything and. It doesn't ruin the films for us. We just love catching it because we've watched them so many times. And that's a good thing. If people are catching your mistakes, that means they've watched it four or five, six times. They know the shots. They're not looking dead center of frame anymore. They're looking around because they're looking for the next thing that they didn't see the first time around. So giving audiences a replay value is another added value to to creating entertainment is because now audiences want to go back and look for all the signs that they missed the first time. So if I'm allowed to make, again, like getting back on that subject, if I'm allowed to move on and, and... you know, research these things, or if, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get a phone call from somebody at New Line or Warner Brothers that's saying, listen, like, we think you got something here, why don't you come in and pitch us your world, that I feel confident that I could walk in and I could pitch them a world that Friday the 13th could exist in, and that by the time we were done telling our story, that that fans would would walk away with kind of the missing piece of the puzzle that they felt has been dormant for, you know, over 20, 30 years now.
0: And Never Hike Alone feels like a doorway into that
3: mm-hmm. and that's what we wanted it to be we wanted to leave the doorway open at the end so people said hey we did it as far as we could we pushed the envelope i definitely you know i you know i pushed the boundaries on this as far as like what a fan film should be and how long it should be um you know from what i read technically we should have cut this thing off at around 20 minutes mm-hmm. and broke it up into three different episodes um but I wanted to take the risk to just leave it as a thing because I wanted it to be presented in the best light possible and then basically ask for forgiveness later. Um, And luckily I haven't had to ask for forgiveness. They've, they've, you know, like I said, like Paramount Warner brothers, new line, horror Inc, Sean Cunningham, all of the rights holder, all the people who have stake in Friday the 13th, which there are a lot of people and which is why it's very complicated to get them made have all sat back and just said, let's see what happens. (laughs) Let's see what these guys bring to the table. And, you know, with an outpouring of support over the weekend and, and, and going into this week with, you know, a lot of people viewing it and being happy. I, you know, I can't help but say, you know, I know it's been rough and we haven't been able to get a movie out, but thank you for letting me and giving me the opportunity to do this and showcase my skills, like make the fans happy. Give me, give me an avenue to show that, that I can direct and I can, I can carry a film and I can tell a story and, and all of that. And, you know, when it comes time to you know bring up the subject of friday the 13th please include me in that conversation because i feel confident that i can help you get it to the place you want it to be and it can become the franchise and be the thing that will make your studio money will create you know revenue stream and all those things and we'll do it by satisfying the fans and it's the best way to do it you know not a cash grab not a let's put the the title on it and get people in the audience and take their money and and whatever you know it's Let's create something that's not only going to make money when people show up on day one, but they're going to go tell their friends to show up the next week and be like, no, you have to watch this film. You don't understand. It's not your typical Friday. It's 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 so different. It's 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 something that even you could like type thing. It's not just for Friday fans. It's for everybody. And that they're going to show up not only to that film, but they know that going into it, that it's built for the long haul, that we're going to keep bringing Jason back and there's going to be a bunch of stories in there and it's going to take several stories of several different characters to kind of bring it all to a final final scene and to help build that and actually do it and, and give the fans, I think, what they want.
0: Well, this weekend I was uh, in Las Vegas meeting uh, numerous friends. I know like like 10 different people who were ending up in Vegas this weekend. Hmm. And one of the things is like, I have to make time to watch this film. I, I It's one of the things I needed to do this weekend because I wanted to watch it as soon as I could. And when I started explaining like, no, it's like, it's this passionate guy who like is trying a new take on this. And, and all of them were like, oh really, that sounds actually really cool. And mm-hmm. because they, even though they aren't the... Horror, horror, fan that I am, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like, they were like, Oh, that sounds really interesting. It's like, I, I haven't seen Jason for a while. I mm-hmm. would like to. And, you know, and then after I watched it, you know, I, I, you know, messaged them the next day. And I was like, Hey, yeah, it turned out really, really well. It, mm-hmm. it, and, and I think that's what it is. It's a, it's a good introduction back. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way I look at this. And it's like, I, you know, congratulations on that. I think you Thank achieved, you, you know, I, I think you achieved more than even you intended to for the no, beginning. Definitely.
3: <laughs> definitely. This is way, I mean, it, it, it took on a life of its own and it was, you know, the, as the old saying goes, it was just, I just invested in myself. I, I, as soon as I kind of, at one moment when I kind of saw the film as it came out now in my head is still just a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew how hard it was going to be. And it was a moment where I just doubled down. I said, I'm just going to go for it. And, um, you know, there was a lot of people along the way, uh, where you know when I first mentioned it to you. I mean, we sat down. You weren't the first person I talked to about saying oh, yeah. that I was going to go do this. I had talked to many other people, and and you were one of the few people that were like, "Go for it." You know, I mean, there was other people I talked to that were like, "Why would you want to do this?" Or, mm-hmm. you know, what is it about Friday the Thirteenth that makes you want to? Why don't you just do your own original film? And I was like, "Yeah, that's a great idea." But you know, I've written a couple scripts and I've handed them in to different people and had them read it and. I just got no traction and, you know, I keep writing these stories that I like, but nobody really wants to make them. And, you know, if I'm going to make something, I'm going to do it. I might as well do something that I really, really love. And I want to tell this story and it's a story that I believe in and of all the scripts. And even though they're original and they're good ideas, I was like, there's something about this story that I want to tell this one the most. And every time I tried to put it down, all it did was burn a hole on my desk. And just sit there and look at me and say, what are you doing? Why are you working on that? You know, you want to work, you know, you want to work on me. Come on over. Like, come on, type a few more words. Let's do another scene. Let's come up with another idea. And, you know, it was one of those things where I'm walking through everyday life, like ideas for Friday the 13th movies come to me all the time and I can't help but write them down and, and, and want to do it. And I get really passionate and I love thinking about it. And I used to love, you know, I think the, the, um, uh how do I want to say it? The uh not the blogging but the um the chat room kind of scene has dwindled over the last couple of years going into the bulletin boards and talking about specific subjects. I've right. noticed that a lot of the sites that I used to go to aren't as aren't as busy anymore. There aren't as, as there's not as much of a variety of people talking about it. So there was this kind of missing element in my life where I had no place to go and vent about Friday the 13th or talk about it with other fans because they seem to go in other places and talk about it on other sites that I don't know. I just, I never followed them and I never found them again. And, and I kind of missed out on this opportunity. And so I started to turn it into writing short stories or just writing an idea down or writing a cool kill down or something like that. Thinking that like, yeah, one day my, my career is going to take me to Friday the 13th. And I'm going to have all these cool ideas that I'm going to be able to do. And eventually like the never hike alone idea was the one that was like think about it you have all the elements you have the cabins you have the costume and you have the actor and you have everything you can make this one you don't have to wait for anybody to give you the elements you don't have to go and figure out how to do these things like you can go and shoot this right now with very little money and and you're passionate about it and this is what you want to do right like mm-hmm. you want to make friday the 13th and go make a friday the 13th dress for the job you want and right. so um and though, even though people had told me that, like, you know, no one's going to take you seriously, you know, what are you going to do? Like, think about it. A year and a half ago, if I had sat down with somebody at a restaurant in West Los Angeles and said, I think I'm going to write a Friday the 13th fan film so good that the, like, people who should consider me for directing a Friday the 13th film, I probably would have got slapped like the woman in an airplane
2: <laughs> with a line of people
3: around the block. <laughs> And, you know, and I remember reading, I remember I was reading something on Bloody Disgusting. Um, they, they started doing this um, little article every other week on a, on a fan film. Mm-hmm. They released one on us. We got a really good response. And then they released another one, I think, for a Halloween style short. And there was somebody in the comments who was going off about like, oh, god oh a fan film if you ever walked into a studio meeting with a fan film you get laughed out of the room and like being really pretentious about it and just treating another film like it's not even a true indie production and all these different things and and it was i don't know it was daunting it was like wow there's people out here who really hate fan films and really look down on us and and, you know, people are going to look down on me and they're going to see it as, as a sign of, of weakness or an ability to come up with something original when it it's not that. There's actually so much originality in this film. Um, and it's taking something that's stale and dead and reviving it is just as challenging as coming up with something new sometimes.
0: And also, I yeah. think part of that might be a reaction to um, bad fan films. Because, yeah. I mean, there, there are those out there, definitely. So, like, the fact that you went out and you you strive to do something mm-hmm. worthy of the franchise. Mm-hmm. I and mean, then that was the first thing in the very first conversation I ever had about this with you mm-hmm. was, and I'm sure that's why I encourage you to say yes to yourself was like, you wanted to do it. Well, you, mm-hmm. it's not that you wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. It's that you wanted to do it well and you wanted to do it out of respect mm-hmm. and passion rather than just do it. Cause it was be cool.
3: Yeah, I know. I mean, there was definitely a strategy in there. Like, you know, the original strategy was, we know that Friday the 13th is a popular, um, franchise and there's a lot of fans there. And that if we can do that, we can showcase our talents because we actually have, we have a a crowd to show it to. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, how many times have we helped out a friend on a short film or participated in a a 40 hour film festival or made something that really like only you and your friends are going to watch and it's going to go online and you might find a you know a message board to put it on or something you might get a couple of you know people saying this and that but um you know most of the time these shorts that we work on aren't aren't the caliber that will get into a film festival because you don't have the type of money to put into yeah. it or or something like that and for us we needed to get something where somebody could trust us with money and we needed to do something to show that we could entertain an audience and more than anything i wanted people to just watch it and so I wasn't doing it for money. I wasn't doing it because of that. I just wanted to make something that people were actually going to sit down and look forward to and watch. Um, and that's where it started. I, you know, I wanted to, to do that. And, and Friday the 13th offered that opportunity because it was something that I loved. And I knew that there was a community there that would support it. And I knew that it was something I would want to invest time in and make it good because mm-hmm. um, I cared about it. And I wanted it to be good. And and I'd seen a ton of other fan films and, you know, I applaud people for their effort. And the fact they went out there before technology had really caught up to where it is now. And they were shooting with, you know, probably high eight cameras and, you Mm -hmm. know, just the stuff that you can buy at Best Buy that is going to give you that really, you know, digital look and it doesn't have that film quality to it. But you saw the spirit and the fun there. And, and, you know, with with the limited budgets that some of those have, they pull off some pretty interesting things and, and, and have some really good moments. Um, and I think we just wanted to show specifically what kind of skill we would have. I didn't know that it would, that that's what it is. I totally underestimated myself. I wanted to get to there. I didn't know if I would. Um, but it was something I had to discover along the way and it just kept getting better and better as we went and it kept getting longer and longer as we went. Um, and like, like we talked about before, this is only supposed to be 10 to 12 minutes and possibly even the first time I was going to do it, it was only going to be five to seven. Mm -hmm. Um, and it all just grew out of that. And it grew out of just doing something real and, you know, finding the camp played a big part in expanding it and allowing us an opportunity to go and build some sets, um, which was another challenge. Um, and you know, we, we just kind of took the bull by the horns and took it again, one thing at a time. And, and you know, at the end of it, when we added it all up, it added up to what we see. Um, and we didn't know what it would be. We didn't know how much of that footage we would use. We didn't know if we were having have to make major cuts and, and cut things out because it was going to be too long. Great.
2: Um,
3: you know. And we ended up building. The other, the other thing that, that we were kind of um, that helped us out is the fact that we weren't handcuffed to any singular format. We didn't have to be 90 minutes or fit in a half hour or do something. It was We wrote a story that we felt told the story as long as it needed to be. It didn't need to be any longer or shorter than it was. Um, we could have told a shorter story, but we wanted to add more story in there. We added mm-hmm. the scene with the bunk bed later on. We added, you know, we expanded the tent scene a little bit more to give character, a little bit more character to Kyle and understand what he's out there doing and kind of who he is. And, you know, there are things like that we went and did and expanded. But, it you know, it wasn't until we actually... Um, you know, sat back and put it all together. I mean, I remember when I was originally doing the predictions, I was like, okay, maybe we'll get 35 minutes. And then more of the movie would get together and it would stick and it would work. And I'd be like, okay, now we're at 40. an now we're at 45. an now we're at 50. Like, it just kept growing. And I didn't realize that we actually had enough usable content there mm-hmm. because we were just trying to get what we could get. And And then as we were going, realizing that, like, wow, this is really adding up. And this is these are turning into scenes. Like, there's actually content here where you know. And there's like, for all the footage that you do see, there's so much more on the editor cutting room floor. Like, there were different parts of the you know camp that we explored and, and shot and shot from different angles and things like that. But we really whittled it down to what we believe showed the best view of it, and you know was the fastest way through. But at the same time, taking the time to set up everything. Like, why do we see him walk through so many hallways? Well you know, the first thing we wanted to do was, you know, well, let's the Steve Christie scene, the scene where we go in and, and go into the offense and we find the playboy. That was our sneaky way of sneaking nudity into the film. Like that was, <laughs> um, you know, that was like, that was, I had that idea from the beginning of like, you know, there's some tropes that I want to try and hit. We actually tried a scene where Kyle did smoke pot. Um, we were going to try and sneak that in, but when we cut it in, it didn't work and it didn't fit the character and we dropped it out and we ended up reshooting some stuff there to help the help it connect a little bit better um and and clean up that but it was something that like it was just something I wanted to explore and experiment with and it didn't work and I was able to turn it away I didn't say like well this has to be in the film because every Friday the 13th I have to have pot smoking um but when we figured out that it worked against our character and made him unlikable, it doesn't fit the character. It doesn't fit the character. We, it was a funny line. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was a funny moment, Mm -hmm. but, um, but we ended up cutting that out and, and, but the, the playboy played into a really great part because it, it, it was a good fun surprise. It was kind of a good, it was kind of a tongue in cheek way to kind of bring the kind of the campy, you know, um, the can't, campy can't side to it and then realize that that was still there and the fact that steve christie kept a playboy hidden under all his like overdue receipts right. and bills right. that were in his in his box of stuff which i thought was kind of a fun character moment because if you think back to part one steve christie is kind of a perv <laughs> you know he touches alice's hair and he's kind of weird with her and he's kind of he's got that mustache uh, um, right. <laughs> so so there's definitely a playboy hidden somewhere and you know so that that kind of set up that for a fun thing but then we go right into setting up the, you know, the ribbon and then, um, that starts that kind of storyline that pays off big time at the end with the final scene of, of, of the right. water, the water scene. Um, and then, you know, we go into that hallway and he goes through and we're leading like what's at the end of this hallway and the door and finally opening it up and opening up into the big room. Um, you know, it could have been very easy for us to just start on the door. Like, why are we walking through that hallway? Well, the hallway builds tension. Also, when Jason comes through that hallway later in the film, we need to see that all those beds are in the way. And the reason why he isn't just taking two steps, opening the door and in there, why why is it taking him so much time? We wanted to give credence to the shot we were trying to set up later. So that's the reason why we do it. I mean, like there's the shot, like one of my favorite shots is when he's, he does this it's this, we could, my team calls it the searcher's shot when he steps out into the triangle cabin and he shines the light for the first time like after he's done the confessional right and he starts walking up along the cabins it was like that was a shot that reminded me of part one um when the character annie is first coming into blairstown or coming into crystal lake and she's walking up the road and they have this very long shot of her just walking and they you know they they didn't have the technology to do anything slick that day. And it's a very 70s and 80s technique is to do these long shots where characters will just walk up through frame and stuff like that. And so it was one of those shots that we felt kind of harkened back to that style of cinematography and harkened back to the 80s um, and, and brought that that type of language into those shots and led us through. Um, and basically we had, you know, we, we tried to use, we had we did a bunch of shots from inside the buildings looking out Um, but ultimately we only chose one. Um, We had this whole, like there was actually one scene we filmed a couple of times to get it particularly right that didn't end up in the film at all where he actually steps up onto the steps of the main cabin for the first time but we ended up realizing that that kind of repeated some shots and we ended up dropping it out. And those are shots. I I was like convinced were always going to be in the film. Hmm. And when it wasn't in and we, I kind of laughed and I turned to to my DP and I was like, it's kind of funny those shots in after we shot them all those times. Right. (laughs) I was like, but we don't need it. And like, it felt good in a lot of places where we were like, Oh, we can drop that. We don't need it. We don't need it. And we thought we needed it for safety or we thought it was going to do something and then it doesn't work. But you realize that the film just continues on without it and you don't you know you didn't need to to cover as much as we did but we did it because we wanted to explore every avenue and it never stopped us from getting anything it never you never got in the way we always walked away with with you know stuff that we were able to really work with and um and play with and just at the end just use what we absolutely needed um but yeah i mean it was you know that all went in and and became like a big part of the formula of 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 like building the final vision which was you know what are we going to do to, you know, that was very important to me about setting everything up in the front and then paying it off in the back. And even things you didn't expect, um, that everything was tied up. Like even Axel having the playboy in the end scene, which I thought was a great callback. Um, you know, and even those two characters kind of being, um, you know, they, not only do they, you know, not only do they come to the film and as the film transferred into a Friday, the 13th film, but those characters feel like they belong in a Friday, the 13th. Oh yeah. And they're supposed to really be, um, they're supposed to be hearken back to Axel and Morgan from part four and their relationship and the way they work. Axel's kind of like, you know, the dirty, you know, <laughs> like womanizing, you know, paramedic. And, uh, Denny is the, um, you know, the sweet, innocent, uh, you know, EMT and, you know, the doe eyed. And, you know, there's like, there's always a line from uh, nurse Morgan in part four where like her acting is just kind of like off. But it just, like, says so much about her as, like, a character where she's like, you're driving me nuts, actually. You're really... And like she stops, she like zips up your shirt and like,
2: right. And then he says I something to. And
3: he goes, "What are you doing?" He's like, "You're driving me crazy." And it was just like kind of like a really flat delivery of the line, and it was kind of funny. And so when we were talking to Katie about it, I was like, "We're going to play you kind of funny in the scene. Like you're going to be Nurse Morgan as she would be today." And so like some people were like, "Oh, like the acting's really weird in that that part." I was like, "Yeah, it's like it's supposed to be like he's woken up in a Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> film, which is part of the fun of it." And. You know, I I don't know if people really caught on to that part, but there's a re Like, we tried to dig into the to some of the dialogue that you would hear in Friday the Thirteenth film and the way that those characters talked. We wanted to bring that element into it. Well, it, that it reminded we, me yeah. of
0: the yeah of that sequence actually because yeah. I thought of the guy watching the old '80s exercise programs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sequence.
3: Yeah, uh, and so that was a callback to that and their dynamic in the way that those two actors in the '80s acted together and the way that that scene is out and. I like it. Like, I think it's very charming the way that that they perform that thing. And I think they're a very funny couple. Um, And I wanted to kind of bring that type of of tone into it, even though we had been really super serious all the way through. I think it was was time to get a little lighthearted and play with some of that Friday the 13th fun because things were about to get serious again very Mm -hmm. momentarily. And we had just gone through so much serious, 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 like sewing up his leg and fighting Jason and knocking the mask off and getting stabbed and... And barely getting away and having a traumatic, you know, dream and then waking up and being able to bring a smile to the audience's face again for a little bit before you go back and wipe it back off. It's like you, you as I know, being filmmakers know that you have to have that ebb and flow in a scene. You have Mm -hmm. to, you know, that's the best thing about horror is that I think we do that to a certain degree in our film is, you know, you're laughing one scene and then you're dreading the next. It was like, you know, leading up to the point where he finds the dead possum. And, like, one of my, you know, again, I keep saying this, but, like, another one of my favorite shots is when he, you know, we don't just have him, like, throw the possum behind the shed. We actually have him, like, whip it through the air. Oh, which is awesome, yeah. <laughs> and launch it to just kind of, like, you know, get a chuckle. And then a second later, he sees another red ribbon, and we show Steve Christie's rope in the tree. And again, Which I love. And it's a good transition to change the mood so we can tell a campfire story about Camp Crystal Lake. And so... Yeah. It was just one of the things I liked playing with from a creative standpoint while we were making the film.
1: One of the questions we really love to ask creators is what kind of advice would you give someone that wants to follow in your footsteps? Um, but I'm going to preface this by saying this whole conversation has kind of been like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there anything else that you might not have said yet where, um, like actual
3: advice, like, do a kickstarter don't do a kickstarter something like stuff like that. I think that the the most simple advice is don't give up. Um there's no right or wrong answer. Everybody's path to the goal will be different. Um we all have different um strengths and weaknesses and we you need to learn what those are. And if you're an up and coming filmmaker and you don't know what your strengths and weaknesses are, that can be really frightening. And it was frightening to me. I mean, there were many times where I felt overmatched and overchallenged and I had to fight through and believe in myself to believe that I can come up with something that was good and I wasn't always good you know not everything I shot came out perfect and there were things that I had to reshoot because I didn't do things right but I learned from them and I took the time to go back and and learn from my mistakes and not get so down on myself that I couldn't get back out there the next day and try it again. So the real key element to anything you ever want to do in life is just to not give up and to believe in yourself and to keep pursuing it. And that don't take failure as a sign to stop, take failure as a sign to learn. And in that you will grow as a person. Um, you know, I would say my other word of advice would be to just, you know, not only just give up but try to stay positive. Um it's very easy to get down when things go wrong. I know I battled with a lot of emotional issues while I was I was doing this film because it was so challenging and it was, you know, it was morphing me into a new version of myself and it was hard to live up to the standards I was trying to set for myself and it became a really, you know, hard challenge sometimes to to say that, yeah, you can do this. I mean, sometimes your brain works against you and says, no, you have no talent. No, you can't do this. Like what makes you think that you have the, you know, what gives you the right, who do you think you are? And you hear those, those doubts in your head and you, you doubt yourself. And you think about the people who told you that this was a bad idea and that fan films, you know, nobody likes a fan film. And, or no matter what you're doing or whatever excuse that somebody will tell you not to do what you want to right. do. And, and what's ultimately the most important is that you have a dream and you have a life that you want to live and you have a reality that you want to exist in where you want to accomplish the goals in life that you set out that before you, you know, take your last breath on this earth that you've pursued the thing that you've wanted to do and experienced the thing in life that, you know you see is like the purpose of living and for me it is working in this industry it's being a storyteller it's being you know giving the opportunity to entertain people and I felt that risk on the line with this project and I think that anybody who pursues a passion always always feels that you know they feel like this is the thing that I want to lead me on to the path that I want to live the rest of my life doing um, and sometimes it takes a little longer um, you know, if you would ask me, and I think this is a typical millennial problem is we all think that we should be like the CEOs of company, like the moment we get hired and we want to be at the top and we want to be making decisions and we want to feel important. And for me, like people will say like, Oh, this guy just made a fan film and, and now he's going to get all these things. It's like, no, this took 10 years, you know, it took 10 years of me going and learning about the industry and, and learning the ins and outs and talking to people like you, Russell, and the other, um, you know people who've been in the industry much longer than I have, who had experience and have had careers and have gone and done vastly different things with their careers and how they got there and why they got there and how they were able to pursue it and realize that, you know what, it, it's okay to take your time. It's okay for it to, to take a couple years for you to get where you need to be. It's okay for you to fail a couple times and make a couple things that maybe don't come out the way you exactly want it. But as long as you don't let it stop you, you're going to be able to move on and get better. And the next time you do it, you're going to do things a little bit better. You're going to learn some new things. And I still have a long way to go. I still have a lot to learn. I mean, I've just done this fan film by myself for, you know, the amount of money that I did. Like my next challenge is being able to work with a studio as a director and being able to work with producers and being able to work with writers and, you know, not only just be working and owe it to myself and some Kickstarter backers that I create a project, but now, you know, owe it to a set of investors and a producer that has believed in a project and has hired you to do it on a certain budget, you know, and if I had done something like this, you know, 10 years ago and it had done well, I wouldn't have had the knowledge that I have know now about being responsible with a budget and and about how important that is and what that means to a company and its longevity and being able to make multiple movies. And it's not all about what the director wants and the director gets whatever he wants. It's that's not how it works. It's a giant compromise. It's everybody trying to work within each other's box to get along and all complete one singular goal with the limitations that you have and you know directors get themselves into trouble because they won't give up and they end up going over budget and they end up having to get their movie canceled because they run out of money and that was a big risk that we had but ultimately the only risk was really on myself and obviously the 277 kickstarter backers who graciously decided to back our project and you know i felt that responsibility and so that transfers over to my next thing and and you know not just releasing something online but having something that would have to go up into the theater and and really earn that money back that's a responsibility that i'm gonna i'm gonna have to learn but again after doing this i'm not so much afraid anymore i'm afraid but i'm willing to tackle it and i'm willing to face it head on and that's that's the secret it's the secret of facing your fear and constantly pushing against it and pushing back and no matter how many times it knocks you to the ground, or if it takes the steering away from your, from your, your Ford Bronco, (laughs) or if it, you know, makes your monitor go out, or if it snows on you in the middle of May, that you just dust yourself off and you keep moving forward. And in the end, the only thing that can be rewarding is just to stand out in front of a bunch of people and saying that you made it. You know, I think that was one of the most proudest moments is being able to stand stand on that stage and and reach it and have a vision and a goal and actually being able to achieve it and seeing it in reality. And no longer is it a dream, but it's, it's now you've made it into that world. You've created that reality for yourself. And it's no matter how hard it gets, that's what makes it rewarding. And, you know, not only that, to see... You know not only to see it finished and done which is it's rewarding in its own sense no matter how good or bad it comes out you know the 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 cream on you know the icing on the cake is the fact when people you get it to a point and you've you've pushed your skill so far that now people appreciate it mm-hmm. and that is definitely the most rewarding feeling and it's not something I could have done um out here for two years or three years it took 10 years um to get this far in my career and I know You know, I can't wait to think about where I'm going to be in another 10 years and another 10 years after that and constantly keep going and getting better. And it gives me hope. Um, It gives me hope for myself and where I want to go and how I feel about myself and and the things that I want to do that I didn't give up on this and that I didn't fail my way out of it um, or feel that I, you know, did it in a way that people wouldn't want me to make a movie again. Um, I did it in a way that I was proud of it and that other people were, um, you know, uh, received it well, and it's just a good feeling.
0: I don't know how familiar, but uh, we have one traditional question, which is sort of a, a life choice question. Uh-huh. Um, and that's because Mike and I see things differently, and it's like we look at things from different perspectives. So there's one question that we like to ask our guests, and um, we'd like to get your take on this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are you Team Snickers or Team Kit Kat? Oh, i <laughs> Team Kit Kat.
2: <laughs> I love Kit Kats. Thank you very like... much. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> All right. So uh, well, now Jason Voorhees, what team is he on?
3: Oh. I don't know. They didn't they didn't, they didn't have Snickers or Kit Kats back then, did they? Snickers they would 79? have. Yeah. No, it would have been in the 50s. Oh, 50s. Um Oh, that's right. In the A Mars bar. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Mars bar. That, that's a good point. So, yeah. And if you notice, we have the, the elusive green Kit Kat, and we have dark chocolate Wait, Kit Kat. Elusive? So, the elusive. Yeah. Is that the, the green
1: tea Kit yes, Kat? Yes, that's the oh, green yeah. tea
0: Kit Kat. So, uh, yeah. It's like, so yeah. So, uh, another one for Team Kit Kat.
1: <laughs> You're still losing the battle.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Most people go team Snickers. I'm team Kit Kat. So, uh, so I, I think that kind of wraps it up. Um, thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on accomplishing what you have accomplished. And it is an inspirational story. Everything that you just said about the advice for other people of never giving up and all that. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, um, I've been talking to you on and off during this whole process And I've seen you deal with the pressure and I've seen you deal with the excitement. Mm -hmm. So it's been really cool. It's been a cool journey and, um, cannot wait to
3: see what you do next. Me either. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, good luck with that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. No, just thanks for having me on. And I mean, I mean, thanks for, for being there throughout the process. I mean, you've been a great person to talk to and you've seen me at my highs and my lows. And, um, and it's, you know, it, it really is. I mean, that's the other part of it, too, is that, like, the people you surround yourself with. And you always want to surround your, yourself with people who are positive and support you And no matter whatever choice you make in life. Um, and, you know, I find myself very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of great people. Um, you know, you, I mean, my wife especially, I mean, she's amazing. And I can't, you know, say enough about her, the fact that, like, she supported me throughout this entire process, and then she cut the film. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she's a very talented um and I was so lucky to have her without, I mean, as, as much credit as I'm getting for this, this film would not happen without my wife. Um, she was the secret weapon. Um, you know, she's the one who, you know, comforted me at my lowest lows and saw me in, in my, my lowest moments when I really doubted myself and encouraged me to move forward and, you know, bailed me out. Because she's a good editor and she was able to cut around a few things and find solutions and and do things like that. And, you know, I'm really fortunate to have a team that I had, people who volunteered and and took, you know, major pay cuts and volunteered their time for free Mm -hmm. just to make this good. Because they all believed in this project and they thought that it could be something special. And when you have a crew and you surround yourself with people who all believe the same thing, special things happen. That's great. And where can uh, people find you online? Um, the easiest place to find us is on our website, WompStompFilms.com, w o m p s t o m p filmscom We're also on Facebook at WompStompFilms, Instagram at WompStompFilms, Twitter at WompStompFilms, and YouTube.com slash WompStompFilms is where you can find all of our content. I would suggest following our Instagram um, because we post a lot of behind-the-scenes footage there and mm-hmm. photos, and especially now that the film's out, we can release more and more. Um, we've been releasing a lot of the behind the scenes like VFX and things like that. Kelsey's been releasing photos of her working on Andrew's head and how she built that. We're going to work on some stuff of how we built the face and and things oh, like excellent. that. So people who are interested in how we built this film, we're going to start releasing more and more info about that so they can see actually how it got made. That's cool. excellent. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you again for coming over and talking. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
3: Of course, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure here talking to you both. <laughs>
0: Once again, really like to thank Vinny for coming by and talking about the short film, Never Hike Alone, the 55 minute long short film, Never Hike Alone, uh, a Friday the 13th fan film, which is definitely worth checking out. It's an inspirational story to see how that thing took off and grew and became such a huge
1: passion project. We really, really appreciate him coming by and, and sharing the stories and talking about it. And it's really cool to see what can happen when you are passionate and you, all, and you do love a certain thing so much that you create a version of it on your own. This film is exactly that. It's someone who loves Friday the 13th making a film honoring Friday the 13th. And yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, you can definitely find lots
0: of Easter eggs and little uh, interior references to other franchise films, and
1: it's a lot of fun to watch. So we highly recommend you check it out. So thank you again, Vinny, for stopping by the My Haunt Life Studios, (laughs) aka Russell's Kitchen Table. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And And uh, thank you all for listening. Um, This has been one of the longer ones, um, but it's full of fun information i think this was a meandering journey for sure definitely a wandering conversation
0: but we touched on everything from the game to the movies to the franchises to the actors to like this i enjoyed this i really did yeah Um, so hope you enjoyed listening to it uh i think that wraps it up right mike yeah for now all right i'm mike and i'm russell see
2: ya
0: get out Mm. we're done for now
2: everything okay? All right. (laughs) You looked worried there for a second.